Oh, uh, nice. Are we recording already? I like to start just from the, the get-go. Yeah. That's, oh, that's totally fine. So uh, this is an ericswanracing.com podcast. We got Bryce Kenny in the house tonight, and uh, I think it's episode high 130s. I forget the number off the top of my head, but um, thanks for coming on and talking to me for about an hour or two today. Yeah, man, absolutely. I'm excited. So I like the podcast. I think you got some interesting content on there. So uh, glad to be part of it. Thank you for uh, your reaching out. Um, I hear you have a, a up-and-coming book that's uh, going to be released soon or is out now. It's out. Yeah. Anywhere books are sold, actually. You get Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and uh, and even Audible. So I, I was never really an audiobook guy and uh, until I did the voiceover for my own book. And I said, man, if I actually, if authors voiced it over themselves, assuming they weren't like really super boring, then I would probably listen to more audiobooks. But I know books are kind of a hit or miss, especially in the motorsports world, because some people are like really get it and they love it. It's kind of a, a nice little hobby for them on, on the side. And there's some people that have not picked up a book since high school, right? And so um, the good news is I, I'd like to think that my book, because I've been both of those people, the ones that never read uh, after high school for a couple of years. And uh, then I had a mentor that was like, yeah, I told a mentor because he get, handed me a book and I said, yeah, I don't really like to read. He goes, yeah, I, I don't really either, uh, but I hate being an idiot more. So that's why I read. And I went, okay. So, <laughs> so I really dove into a lot of books and uh, never actually thought I would write a book, but proud of this book geared for life. And it's, it's, I really truly mean this from the bottom of my heart because we took two years to polish this thing and make it into something really good. Um, I, I believe it can be the tool, the difference maker for people chasing a dream, or maybe they just kind of get tired of asking that question. Like, is this really all there is to life? You know, their head hits the pillow. And it's like, is this it? This book is going to help them get through that. Sure. And um, sometimes people think, well, I could never do that. Why would I even try? Right. So like yeah. you got to set these goals that you can hit, but sometimes you got to hit go or set goals that are, that seem impossible, right? Like how am I yeah. going to uh, achieve that, that one thing in my life that I really, really want. It seems so cool that I, you know, to, to get there, but how do I even start? Yeah. Well, and to your point too, I think, I, you know, the whole essence of the book itself is, you know, I think we we spend so much time worrying about what's at the finish line, like, like that goal, that vision. And now I'm a big uh, proponent of having a great vision. So don't get me wrong, but what happens is we start to clarify this vision for our lives and these goals that we want to accomplish. And they feel so far away that we never start. And, and so if, if accomplishing our goal, if we have to find fifth gear, right. To get across the finish line and make it, I always, you know, I always use a drag racing analogy. I know, I know you guys cover quite a bit of NASCAR and stuff, but, and a lot of uh, uh, two wheel stuff, but you know, if you're going around laps and such, I mean, you're going to have to be in that top gear whenever you're going across the finish line. And the problem is, is a lot of us are in neutral, maybe first gear. And we're just kind of like, man, I'm, I almost get stressed and anxious and overwhelmed because there's so much that has to happen in order for me to actually accomplish that thing I'm setting out to do. And the essence of this whole book, Geared for Life, is when you know what your gears are, uh, you're you're way more confident with going and shifting from first to second at the right time. And so the question is, then, what are the gears? And I believe our gears, each of us have our own gears, and there are uh, foundational beliefs. And so in this book, Geared for Life, I share my seven personal foundational beliefs, uh, the, the, the gears that I found. Uh, you know, failing in a, in my career attempt in professional drag racing, um, then being successful in corporate America, and then making this career move over into Monster Jam that I've been in for the last eight years, I've constantly had to shift. I've had to find that next year. And if I'm an expert in anything, it's just that it's 
finding my next gear. I don't have life figured out. I'm the last person that would ever claim I've got the secret to life, but I am an expert at just finding my next gear. And so these seven foundational beliefs, these found uh, these seven gears that I share, I hope that by the time the reader gets to the end of the book, like they'll probably steal a few of my gears, things like, you know, being purpose driven, uh, you know, and, and I go through how to find your purpose. Like if that's not worth the, the price of the book in and of itself, yeah. Uh, then I don't know what is because all of us, I mean, if someone could, you know, hand down your purpose and say, here you go, pal, I think all of us would take that at a young age. We struggle with that, uh, but I think we've made it way harder than it should be. Um, and I talk about, you know, a gear like becoming built for other people. As simple as that sounds, what does that look like today? What does it look like to take our eyes off ourselves and 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 help other people? Can you do that 100% of the time? No, but sometimes you have to make that conscious decision to shift into that uh, built for other people gear. And so, but that's what the book's for. So by the time a reader gets to the end. The They're going to steal a few of mine, most likely. But my goal is that they find and uncover some of their own. And that's what somebody is going to take with them for the rest of their life. And as they go in and chase after their dreams, and my gosh, if this was the tool that changed everything for somebody and actually put them on the the uh, you know the race course that towards accomplishing what they've always dreamed of, isn't that worthwhile? So I know that that's high expectations, and as an author, I wanted to serve that for anyone that picks it up. Uh, but I I'm proud of it. I think it's going to help a lot of people. That's cool, and you know, finding your purpose is so huge because some people never do it. Like I I know people who don't have a passion and they're just kind of I wouldn't say wandering through life. That seems uh, almost rude to say, but you know, it's like they just don't have that one thing that is guiding them, making their decisions. They're just, they don't have a thing. Like they yeah. kind of like this, they kind of like that, but they're not super into anything. Yeah. And chances are, I think those people just, they were passionate about something at some point and they just let it fall away. I've never met anyone that's like, I was born without passion and I've never experienced it. Like they were passionate at some point, they just gave up on thinking they could go in and do it. And so reigniting that passion and finding that, but the way to find your purpose is equipping that passion. So you're right. The first step to finding your purpose is you have to believe that you've got a purpose, right? So that's step, yeah. that's step number one. Number two is reigniting that passion and uncovering that and figuring out, Hey, maybe I'm not passionate about anything today. Uh, but what, when was the last time I felt passionate about something? And then step number three is equipping it, right? Going and doing the hard work that it takes to, 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 uh, become better in that area that you're passionate about. And maybe some, for some people, it's going back to school to learn that, you know, to learn welding, maybe they're passionate about welding. Well, by the time you go and equip that and master that craft, you'll find your purpose. It'll lead you into your purpose. And, and so, and then I'll, now all of a sudden you're using that skill set and that craft to make the world a better place. Like, trust me, you'll go to bed feeling really, really good. And, and uh, you'll find happiness as a byproduct. And Eric, man, I'm a big believer. I think, I think half of the battle that most of us go through is we've bought into this societal lie of do whatever makes you happy. Like, I think that's a crock of crap. Like, I think it's awful um, because the hard work and inconveniencing ourselves will never make us happy. The happiness is a byproduct of going and chasing something that's bigger than ourselves, right? Finding meaning through what we're doing. The happiness is a byproduct, and it should only be a byproduct because happiness is an emotion, and emotions are fleeting, and they're unstable. 
And uh, now the disclaimer I always like to give is, hey, happiness shouldn't be the goal, but unhappiness shouldn't be the goal either, right? Um, And so it's just, it's almost positioning that right. But man, I get sick and tired of hearing these celebrities out there and that's all they say. It's like, oh, well, is is that making you happy? Uh, okay, great. Well, then go do that. It's like, no, cocaine makes people a lot of people happy, right? Yeah. It doesn't mean cocaine is good. It's Isn't finding a, a purpose that matters. For sure. Yeah. And um, so tell me some of the struggles or things you learned in writing this book. I'm sure it was uh, different <laughs> than you thought it would be from the first uh, outset. Yeah. This okay, so becoming an author was kind of its own gear and of itself that I found. I never dreamed of writing a book in all candor. Um, I just have always been someone that's way more focused on the who I've wanted to become than what I've wanted to go and accomplish. You know, like I always grew up and wanted to be a professional driver. That was part of my what. Uh, you know, I wanted to 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 you to to be in motorsports, and I just thought it'd be so cool to like be known as a driver for a living. Yeah. And so the what really mattered for that. But man, when I got, when I felt like everything shifted for me and everything changed, my big change point is when I, I stopped focusing on what I was doing or what I wasn't doing enough of, right? And I started refocusing on who I ultimately wanted to become before I die. Okay. Right? What is the best version of Bryce Kenny? Before I go and before I'm, I leave this earth, you know, and it's not just about what other people think of me, but how would people describe me by the time I hit my deathbed kind of a deal? Like mm-hmm. what's the, my best version. And we do this with cars, by the way, I, I call it like a, I, I call it a barn find, you know, principle. It's like, we all dream of those as car guys. We dream of being on that back road and you look up on the hillside and there's a barn and there's yeah. those two headlights sticking out of the barn just enough. Like the sunlight hits it, but there's a tarp on top and you kind of look at it and you're kind of like, man, I think that might be, an old Camaro and you, you drive up there and, and you get on the property and sure enough, the old man is on the outside of the barn and you get out of your car and you go over there and he starts talking about it. And sure enough, it's a 69 Camaro. He peels the tarp back. He tells you stories about it. He's had it for 40 years. It's this dime piece, but the thing looks like a pile of crap. Like my wife would look at it and go, Bryce, this thing hasn't run in years. Clearly it's covered in dust and dirt you know, and the guy confirms, yeah, yeah, I haven't had the motor turned over in 10 years. And, but that doesn't matter to us car guys, right? We look at that vehicle in its state. We see it with the crisp new paint job on there. We see it with that. We, we can hear the the back tire screeching and the burnout, you know, from that big block. Like we, we know it and, and that's not our reality, but we can still see that car at the, at its best version of itself. But yet, why do we struggle with doing the exact same thing when we look in the mirror? You know, it's so hard for us to see ourselves and what the best version of ourselves can be and what we want that best version to become. And so for me, that's what the book did for me. Like it helped me towards, it wasn't about the what I was doing, meaning writing the book. It was about who I wanted to become, which is someone who utilizes the platform of motorsports to impact the world, right? I wanted to be someone who goes in this and gives everything I've got to make the world a better place while I've got a platform to do it. And so that's why the book aligned with that. So now all of a sudden the what might've been secondary, but it helped promote the who I ultimately wanted to become. And so it did, man, it cut me open. It reminded me of stories I hadn't thought about in 20 years and stuff where I'd go, where did I learn this principle? You know, and I'd go back and I'd tell the story about, man, this is what happened in my life. This is the conversation I was in with my grandfather, who was my mentor. This is how I learned it. This was the, the tough life situation 
uh, that that built that in me. And I, that's why I think it's going to help because no one's going to think that I'm preaching at them. No one's going to think I'm pointing a finger. It's like, man, I used to get this wrong. This story helped me figure this point out. And now it's foundational for me. What do you think about that belief? And I think that's critical right now because that's not going on in our world. You know, everyone wants to hide truth and everything, all the craziness going on. We're on the brink of war. I mean, if you don't know what you believe, you know, you're going to get chewed up and spit out in this world. And I believe that within the next six to 12 months, and I, I'm hoping that Geared for Life helps people fight against that. Good. I think it'd be a good help for people. I'll definitely check it out. I'd love to read it myself. Yeah, please do. I I know a guy too, Eric. I might be able to, you know, get you a copy. Hook me up. Yeah, <laughs> very good. And you have a, a long history, like you were mentioning, in motorsports. Uh, that's one of our connections here. And uh, did drag racing for a long time. Is that right? Yes, man. I, I grew up on the drag strip. Uh, my grandfather owned a drag strip in Kentucky. Uh, it's Kentucky Dragway now. It used to be called okay. Mountain Parkway Motorplex, but it's Clay City, Kentucky, kind of southeast, and. Uh, I used to spend my whole summers. I mean, I would weed eat the fence line on the weekend or the weekdays. And then on the weekends, I'd be racing our little family junior dragster. And I loved it, man. But my whole world was drag racing. The only reason I'd even seen a dirt track race was because there was a dirt track at the end of that track. And <laughs> yeah. so on Friday nights when they were running, we would go and stand on the tires that were end of our, at the end of our shutdown area, just stand up on those tires and watch the dirt track uh, cars race. Other than that, I've still to this day, I've never been to a NASCAR race. Um, I've never been, the only reason I've been to a monster truck event is because I drive them now, you know, and that was monster jam's first question, by the way, they were like, well, have you ever been to an event? I'm like, well, no, I haven't, you know, well, you, you might have went as a child a long time ago. You did or. Yeah. I think I went to, um, a monster jam event when I was really young. Yeah. And, and a lot of people have experienced it before. Um, but of course I like to tell people, if you haven't seen it in the last year or two, you've not, yeah. you haven't even experienced monster it's jam. It's crazy a lot. what's going on now. Yeah. I mean, the, just the carnage and the chaos. I mean, I'm sure you, have you seen the, you know, different videos online and stuff like that? Just the, the crashes and whatnot. Like, do flips in the air and go 20 feet up and, uh, all kinds of crazy stuff, riding nose wheelies over jumps. And like, yeah, it's like, we're riding a, a dirt bike. A lot of the moves that we learn, come from the supercross world honestly that's what's kind of crazy about it like all the stoppies and all that stuff and uh we kind of watch how they control the bikes and you wouldn't think a twelve thousand pound truck would operate the same uh, but it does yeah twelve thousand pounds fifteen hundred horsepower um methanol methanol motors yeah they're, they're uh, massive machines it's interesting um would you think those would ever actually race like a dirt course or a road course or something like that wouldn't that be interesting you might have to change the tire compound yeah a little bit that would be cool i think that um i mean it's not a monster jam event so monster jam if they hear this they'd be mad that i'm promoting someone else but i don't care because i've been to it and it was awesome it's at the dirt track in charlotte oh, and yeah. it's a group and, and i would give them kudos because of how good it is but they kind of do what you're talking about and then they started doing the over-under track where one truck is literally jumping over a, a truck that's underneath it on their yeah. race course. And so we adopted that at our world finals this, uh, two years ago in Orlando as Monster Jam. And it was so cool. Like seeing a 12,000 pound truck jump over me <laughs> and then, you know, go around the other turn. And of course now it's their turn to go through the tunnel and I'm jumping over another truck. Like it, it, that was a cool feeling. But yeah, I mean, I think the dirt courses and all the dirt tracks... I think we need to start doing more uh, more tracks like that and more events like that because the fan base is crazy. We can get more creative with the tracks themselves. It's a lot of fun for everybody. 
Yeah, and I mean, you see those big trophy trucks doing those massive jumps, and they're racing down city streets all over the world. Yeah, that's true. Right? Well, so I like, tell you what, I don't know if anyone watched any of the Jim Connor stuff. Are you guys kind of do you guys cover much of the Jim Connor? Pretty much all motorsports, anything from bikes to cars, carts, mountain bikes, foot races, everything in between. Yeah, anything, yeah. Uh, anything racing related or or sports. I like sports. So I think Jim Connor, which is what, what that was, uh, Ken Block's brainchild it's on it's on prime video i think it's one of the coolest car documentary things yeah. uh video series and travis pastrano was the one that did this last jim Connor. but what they do I, it's like a video game in real life and when they take these cars these 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 race cars and take them into real life situations doing donuts around these uh donut restaurants like actual donut restaurants stuff like that but we always talked about and we'd love to do it with Hoonigan. Ryan Anderson, who drives Son of a Digger, has a great partnership with Hoonigan. But they were saying, what if we did a whole Jim Conna with just Ryan going and doing all these big jumps and you know, hitting hitting an overpass? Like think about the bridge when you're on a highway, you know, that goes over and that grass, like on the off ramp, that kind of goes uphill a little bit. And you've all you got that grass knoll. Uh, that's kind of a, on the side of the highway going up. I mean, you could take a truck and hit that big, I mean, you know, that's probably what, 40 feet tall, but you could run it and then jump over that whole overpass and back down and down ramp it back onto the highway. Like that kind of stuff, that's where this stuff's going. And that's what the content's got to do. But, you know, you and I going down the road, we've thought about that, like the the yeah. trailer bed, right? That's sitting oh, yeah. up on the highway, that's sitting up. And we're talking about taking Eleanor, you know, to, to jump that truck, like gone in 60 seconds with Nicholas cage. Like, I mean, we, we, as men and guys and, and girls out there too, I know, but it's like, we see that, that trailer that's dropped the drop hitch that's sitting on the ground like that going, man, that would be a killer ramp. Now we got to do something about that and actually take something off those ramps. Dukes so of hazard style. It just costs money. Like you just need the right partners in place to be able to fund the production quality to, to get it to be that cool. You know, you yes. don't film it with a potato, Right. You want to upgrade the camera quality, but, and then you got to pay the producers to edit all the film together. That's really what it takes is you just yep. have to find the right people to help support it. Or you could even do like a Kickstarter, you know, crowdfunding type source campaign. Yeah. Um. So yeah, all these ideas will hopefully eventually get funded. We just got to put the effort in, become your ideal self to get there. Um, and you can make a lot of things, a lot of cool things happen. Yeah. And, and you talk about partnerships. I, I think that motorsports is the last industry that's holding on to the nineties and we've got to evolve. Like I I'm a big proponent of understanding how to change the value that we're adding to partners because people are still just thinking, Oh, I'm going to put a sponsorship proposal and, and go and get this company together. And I'm going to talk about all the, the eyeballs we're going to get them by putting them on the side of my race car at Bowman gray stadium. It's like, buddy, that's, like maybe you might get lucky and strike gold and find someone who cares about that, but people just don't care about that. They want experiences, mm -hmm. right? So first off, how are you going to help our potential customers experience our brand? Well, that if it's just a sticker on the side of a race car, that's not enough because no one's experiencing that brand in that way and getting creative with helping a company out there give their potential customers better experiences because the experience causes a customer to hold on to that brand longer. And now all of a sudden the loyalty isn't because a, a certain driver drives that car with that company on the side of it. It's because they had a great experience with that brand. 
and vice versa. They have a bad experience. It's they, they, you know, we all blacklist it. Right. But the second thing is content. And, and if people are not, you know, social media is such a necessary evil with this and podcasts like yours, Eric, are awesome because this is the kind of content that partners need, you know, and, and if someone's out there like on the verge of maybe, you know, do I partner with Eric or not? They better because the type of stuff you're talking about, this is what fans are going to be able to experience their brand through and be able to experience it on a, a non-threatening level. You're not having to, you know, hit people over the head to go and buy a type of, you know, I don't know why spray paint's coming into my mind, but you know, you're, they're not having, they're, you're not, you're not a pressured salesperson. They're enabling you to help them cause a better experience for that customer. And that's what racing should be. But the racing community is so, all they care about is all I want to do is drive a race car. All I want to do is be a professional monster jam driver. I don't really care about anything else. And if a company comes on board to give money, great, but I'm just going to go and try to win races. That's great. That's not bad, but it's not enough anymore. And that's why I think you see motorsports and NASCAR has got a really bad problem with this uh, as far as the teams themselves. And then also, in my opinion, NASCAR itself as a body, they can't figure it out, right? Because they're not having people come out. So how can you help a, a brand gain better experiences with the fan base if people aren't coming out to race? And I think it's gotten a little bit better over the last year or so, but you know, I'm preaching to the choir. Um, I just have a lot of, of opinions on what the, what that content needs to look like and how creatively we can look at it and say, it's not just about the number of eyeballs that experience that see a brand. It's how that, that those eyeballs experience the brand that, that counts the most. And some people will measure that in as engagement, right? Likes and comments, but that's also, you know, people realize that that's not enough either. All these influencers that used to make 250 grand, before OnlyFans came about, you know, it's like, you know, just by having like uh, a follower count, that's also not, you know, brand, big brands have gotten smart to that. It's not just because someone's got 200,000 followers that matter to us. It's what those 200,000 followers are experiencing that we want to partner with. Yeah. And do you have like VIP hospitality at the race events where they can bring their employees and customers and friends yeah. and family? And, you know, do you have uh, stations where you can have display their products at the track or even yes. do giveaways and, and things like that where they can have the product in their hands or you could even make promotional you know pens and towels and rally towels with their company logos on it no yes all different promotional items like that yeah um, and and you're you're talking about the internal versus external stuff like and and you if you're going to market if someone's out there trying to find sponsorship you gotta you gotta separate those two out in terms of you know trying to go externally help a company find external company customers versus the internal value that you're giving that brand, like the customer experiences and, 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 uh, you know, customer or, uh, not customer employee experiences and employee value. And, 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 uh, I love those, like my sponsorship with great clips. I, I have 70 plus videos to go and do for different teams, great, great clips, franchisees that are across North America, mm -hmm. where I just get in front of the camera, just like this. I encourage that specific team and I give them some motivation, something they can use internally. And I, I created that. And I don't, I'm not saying that to, to pat myself on the back, but I can tell you that I, that the value that got created through the partnership of me just proactively saying, look, how can I help you guys? Like, how can I help energize your teams? 
That's huge. Like that is enormous. Is it hard for me to do? No, I get to do it at home in my studio with my nice audio equipment and knock it all out. But we've got to stop, stop thinking like the 1990s where we think a sticker matters. It does not. It's yeah. all about thinking, what kind of value does this company need? And sometimes just asking them the question, are they more externally focused on customers or B2B, like finding new businesses to partner with? Or is it employee retention, employee, you know, internal energizing, that kind of stuff? You're exactly on point, Eric. Yeah. So I think some sometimes the biggest problem for athletes finding that sponsorship partner is just getting in the meeting with them, having the first conversation, getting in front of them and actually talking to the right person. Right. It's so hard to write, find the right person sometimes in a big company. Yeah. Be so good. They can't ignore you. Yeah. Right. Or That's, keep coming back so often that they just get sick of you and they just, okay, we'll hear it. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. I'm a big, I'm a big uh, believer in that though. It's like when you're so good, they can't ignore you because you will get ignored. And if that hurts your feelings, like don't go trying to chase a dream of motorsports, like get, get over it. Right. Um, and, and, but that's what got, I got my teeth kicked in in drag racing because I couldn't find the money. And I was still thinking like I was in the nineties. Right. I was just, I remember my proposals were all about viewership, national TV. And I remember thinking that the silver bullet was, Hey, do you realize the, the uh, decals on the side of our race rig and the miles traveling down the highway? It's a moving billboard for you. I remember thinking like, no brainer, we're going to get $3 million in sponsorship just because of that. And, and no one cared. It's not that no one cared. That was almost like a, yeah, but we can just do billboards. Like it, it, it didn't matter enough to them to buy into the vision. It had to be something more. And that was 2011, but I got my teeth kicked in, man. The number of times I remember coming out of another boardroom after I got another denial back in, in trying to get the top fuel stuff going. And I, I stepped out and I remember looking over my shoes cause I was watching my, my feet over a curb and I remember feeling super sorry for myself, Eric, because I said like, man, if someone would just give me a shot, like I wouldn't let them down, but no one was giving me a shot. Right. So instead of thinking that maybe the proposal wasn't right, or they were saying no to me personally, and it was probably a combination of both. Like, I'm not going to say like, oh, it's, it, you know, it's just you or it's just a proposal, but man, I'm, I'm very fortunate and thankful for that chapter because the stuff I learned through what companies did not want has enabled me to be more effective now in Monster Jam and the partnerships that we run now that I wouldn't trade those life lessons for anything because we're not out here just playing the motorsports game and we want to change the way the motorsports game is played. We want to change yeah. the way an ambassador, no, gone are the days when you can have a NASCAR driver that, that can't speak on a microphone, that can't interact with a brand, that can't add value at that level and just drive. No, those days are, are over, like it or leave it. There, it's not about talent anymore. Talent is part of it. It's not only about talent. You've got to be a five-tool player, just like in baseball. But if you're a five-tool player in baseball, they'll pay you a lot of money to do it. And it's the same thing now. It, you know, they'll pay you a lot of money to be a good communicator, to be good in the car, you know, to to have those assets, to add value, to think like a business owner, all those things. And that's what it's going to take if someone's going to make a run at this stuff. You know, it seems to me like motorsports is one of the last sports where you're kind of on your own as an athlete to make mm. your own money. Like in any other sport I can think of, they pay you to be there. Hmm. Like you don't have to find the money to pay for it. To, yeah. To go up. Right. And so it's like being involved with motorsports 
makes you evolve as a person because you have to like reach out to companies and be a public speaker and be able to write, you know, documents that, that these lawyers are going to read over and all these contracts and things. And it's like, man, I never knew I had to have an English degree to be a racer. Uh, Holy crap. So um, (laughs) do you think motorsports will ever kind of change its, its course of that and maybe start paying their athletes rather than having to find the sponsorship, like a UFC thing, where Reebok took over and sponsors everything. Um, They don't really have that for most series. I think it's not going to require people to be a legal expert, right? I don't think it's going to make them able to be, have, you know, require them to be a social media expert and all that stuff. I think that you, I think people try to go really wide in their skill sets instead of deep. Mm. And that's why I talk about like, be so good. They can't ignore you. You don't have to be good at everything. You can't be. You know, I I got good at editing and videos and stuff just because I couldn't afford to have anyone else do them for me, you know, and then all of a sudden I got good at at this. I got good at that. I'm passionate about communicating. I want to be a good communicator, you know, but that's that's part of my dream of after I'm done driving too. like I want to do I want to do motivational speaking like I'd love the idea of going around and talking to groups and getting paid to do it. Give me a break. Like, that's amazing. Um, But I don't think anyone should hear what I, what we're talking about and think, Oh my gosh, I, I don't even know where to start them. Like I, I felt far away from my dream before this podcast. And this is just making me feel like I'm further away. It's like, no, you know, you, are you where you're supposed to be yet? No, because if you were where you needed to be, you'd already have what you were wanting to have, but you do need to find your next gear. Don't worry about all five gears. Right. But you, you know, you're stuck in first gear. You've been doing really great but you've been screaming in first gear and your motor's at 7,500 RPM and you're wondering why you're burnt out and you don't have any hope. It's because you're, you know, you're on the highway trying to go 75 miles an hour, but you're still in first gear (laughs) screaming at 7,500 RPM. It's like, you got to shift to second. Don't shift from first to fifth, right? That's not how transmissions work. That's not how cars or bikes work. And, and so finding second gear is critical. And the question is what's second gear, right? Well, that's, so you're saying like uh, you want to try something different, but don't try something 10 times ahead, right? Yes. Get to the next gears. Try something different. Don't keep doing the same thing and banging your head against the wall. Let's try something a little bit different in the same area and see where that goes. Yeah. Maybe you've got the eyeballs in from a marketing standpoint. Like maybe you've got that all nailed down. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, how, how are you doing if you're going to rate yourself on communication? Where would you rate yourself? What about just business knowledge? Where would you rate yourself? You know, what about contracts and legal stuff? Where would you rate yourself? And by the way, if all three of just those those uh, those examples, I would be like, well, out of you know scale of one to ten, I'd give myself a one. That's okay. The mistake would be trying to become a ten at all three of those things. the The right thing would be okay. Maybe it's time that I get better at communicating. And the question is, how do I become a better communicator? And that's going to be different for every person. But I do think my book, Geared for Life, will help people be able to nail some of that stuff down. But I got really tired of these messages from fans saying, like, how do I become a Monster Jam driver? And I was like, dude, I don't I don't know. It's like winning the lottery three times by, by the time you get chosen and all that stuff. But I made a video on YouTube. It's called Pathways to Monster Jam. It's a three-part video, a three-part series. And I do the exact same thing. I go through what I believe a monster jam driver, like what the, if it's a five tool player in baseball where they go like hitting, hitting with power, running speed, all that stuff, throwing, you know, I think monster jams got, you know, five tools to them. 
And let's just take the one being communication. If if you're a one in communication, you need to up that. Maybe you'll never be a 10, but you got to get it up from a one or a two. You got to get it up to a five. And I talk about how to become better in those areas. And, and I don't think it's just pathways to monster jam. Like if someone's got a dream driving a NASCAR, I really think that video series would help them because some of it is business knowledge. Like, you know, and when was the last time you picked up a business book? We don't have to go back and get an MBA, but, you know, pick up something from Robert Kiyosaki or, yeah. you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Pick up some of these business books that, you know, that's going to help you kind of wrap your mind around the business side of motorsports because it is very lucrative. And if you're good and maybe someone says, okay, one of these five areas, I'm going to be a 10 in, then you're going to get attention being a 10 in any of those things. So you could do go back. You could be a, a six at all five of those areas, or you could be a 10 in one of them and a four in the rest of them. And I just about guarantee you'll get attention. And, and it's just a mindset shift. And that's what all this is really all about is getting more confident in what you can be good at and be so good. They can't ignore you. Yeah. Yeah. I like that being world-class in anything. You'll, you'll definitely stand out. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And so uh, what's on your mind today? What do you want to talk about? Do you have anything <laughs> uh, going? No, I just, I, I think it's always fun. I mean, I don't think, uh, do, do many of your viewers know much about just the monster jam world? Do you think? You're my first monster jam uh, racer. Do you call yourself a monster jam racer or athlete? Yeah. Or driver. driver. Yeah. I guess okay. a racer. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's such a unique sport cause it's got all those elements and people think, Oh yeah. You know, just like you said, like, oh, I went when I was a kid and it's going, okay, well, you know, the sport it's not for six-year-olds, like six-year-olds love it, right? but it really is for all ages, for families. It's for people that just want to go out and make some memories, but I, I'm blown away. I mean, people say, how do you get your start in it? Well, we do have a monster jam university and really? uh, Eric, they gave me a diploma <laughs> after <laughs> it. Like, I, I I did not keep the diploma. I left it in the hotel because I was going, guys, this is a little bit of a stretch. Like <laughs> did you laminate it or put it on the wall, put it on the fridge. Yeah, well, and that's the problem. It was like in a big frame and stuff. I should have yeah. kept it. Like it's a regret that I didn't, but I think it was it wasn't gonna fit real easily in my carry-on or my check bag or something. And I was just like, I don't want this thing. This yeah, thing looks stupid. Well, now I talk about this diploma all the time. I should have kept it, but um but that's okay. But I mean, it's just a wild thing to be able to go and do. And, you know, monster jams, the biggest, uh, motorsports fleet in the world, you know, people don't realize that it's all in house. It'd be like if NASCAR owned everything or, you know, these racing series had, you know, it was their cars, their crew, their drivers. That's how monster jam operates. Um, and so they control it all. You know, they build the trucks that. from the ground up right there in their shop in Florida. I thought it was all owned by the drivers or the teams. No. So there are still some independent teams. But 55 trucks are owned by Monster Jam out there, right? Feld Entertainment, FELD. Not the semi-trucks. Yes, 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 yes. Yep. Gotcha. So, and all that stuff is owned by Feld Entertainment as well. Like all, all the rigs and, and whatnot. Um, but yeah, they, they it's a massive company that understands live events. And Feld Entertainment, F-E-L-D, they, you know, they own Supercross. They own... Uh, Disney on ice. They're restarting the circus. They run, they own monster jam. So it, it's kind of cool to be part of a group like that. Cause they, they, they can control the quality of things and they know where they want to take the sport, but 
at the same time, a lot of times it's, it feels like a, for us drivers, it's more about entertainment, less about competition at times. And so there's a fine line between that because we want families to come. We want people of all ages come out there and just have a great time, make some memories, see some crazy carnage and and watch the sport evolve. But at the same time, we also realize that we've got to, uh, you know, we've got to compete and it is racing. It's motorsports. I got 1500 horsepower at the, at the, the tip of my right foot. And when I go and engage it, it's, you know, visors down and we're ready to, to do something really, really cool and create a little bit of carnage. And that's what motorsports should be all about. It, it fascinates me. Companies like this, who like, like formula one, uh, the logistics of, of the undertaking of this is uh, mind blowing. If mm. you've ever worked one of these events, I've worked many, many events in motorsports from like 19 different organizations as a, a race official, uh, yeah. track commercial. And uh, man, it's not seeing all the buildings that are built in a Formula One weekend. You're talking they build dozens and dozens of three-story buildings and take them with them at the end of the event. If it's like a, a street race or a standalone event, it's not a, a purpose-built racetrack. Everything that you see, they take with them in semi-trucks. It's like, yeah, you know, the kind of... Uh, coordination and planning that has to happen for this to happen and same thing with uh with carting 55 monster trucks to a stadium and they got to bring the dirt there and like make the track and all that stuff yeah. and put up all the barriers and it's wild that well and and we, we a lot sometimes we've had events going on saturday night and you know a concert going on sunday night and yeah. we're we're in there we take 300 truckloads of dirt and dump it on that floor stadium floor and you wouldn't know we were there by you know 4 p.m the next day and so to your point it's it's astronomical to think of just one of the six tours so we have six different tours that go on at the same time we had eight before covid hmm. and uh six different tours going on two of them are are stadium tours right so the bigger football stadiums and that's the one i get to compete on them four arena tours and those arena tours are just what you would think like the smaller coliseums that hit you know more cities hmm. and uh a lot of people ask, like, do you take the dirt from city to city? Like, no, you know, we, we, That's all the dirt, <laughs> yeah, all the dirt is local and Feld entertainment probably owns more dirt than anyone else in the country. I would die. And that's total speculation. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's crazy. I mean, we're going to Anaheim next month. The dirt we're going to use is, is a parking lot all year long, right there at angel stadium until a monster jam comes. And we go and we dig up a parking lot literally, and we truck all that dirt into the stadium and shape it. And, uh, and we usually use it for supercross or the rodeo. Uh, so, you know, but, but the, most of the year, I'd say what, you know, 49 weeks out of the year, it's just a parking lot out there for, for yeah. Anaheim. So yeah, all those logistics to make this stuff happen. We have about 150 people just for my tour alone to pull off one weekend multiply that times six and that's what it takes every single week and that doesn't even include the office stuff and all the prep that went into getting it that's just to make that weekend happen on site is about 150 people and how how big would you say the crowds are if you're going to those big football stadiums that could be like what 60 some thousand people yeah yeah the last time we were in tampa we did at the buccaneer stadium we did two events and between both days uh i heard it was right at 110,000 people between both. So, you know, call it 60,000 one night, 50,000 the next day. But that was our, that was the biggest weekend I've been a part of. You know, we usually average right there anywhere between that 30 to 55,000 people. Um, and it kind of goes all over the map. But we were one of the first groups to come back after COVID, even before football, 
all that stuff to let fans back in. We we created the pod seating and stadiums. <laughs> and even our – even so the Cowboys, if anyone remembers, the Cowboys were the first NFL team to come back and play with fans in the stands. Well, they kept all of our zip ties all over the seats in, in AT&T Stadium there in Dallas – uh, and used our same pod seating format. And so Monster Jam literally was the first li- live event that uh, we were aware of to allow fans back in the seats, uh, which was kind of cool, right? We kind of helped to kind of push that all stuff, all that, you know, junk back into getting fans back in. But uh, uh, yeah, and then, then everyone used our template. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, it's, uh, and then you said, how many events do you typically have a year for the Monster Jam? So I'll do about 20 some a year, but there's some guys doing, especially these arena tours, they'll do 30 weekends wow. a year. Um, and so I can't remember, I know it's over 400 monster jam events that we'll do this year. Uh, but, and yeah, and it's, it's, it's pushing upwards of about 5 million uh, live event fans as wow. well across the, yeah, across what we're doing. So um, and the pit parties are pushing right at about a million people. So that's people are coming through, getting autographs, engaging with these brands. You know, we talk about well, how does a brand get experience, and that's what I love. In the case in point, you know, when people come to our pit parties at Monster Jam, you know, Great Clips, the the hair salon uh, brand, is my sponsor. It's a huge company. We have we have Great Clips stylists that are there at the pit parties, gelling up people's hair into mohawks to match mine, you know, and like, and like just engaging the fan, man, it gives them such a cool touch point. They're spraying hair, you know, they're spraying the mohawks, different colors. And, and that's, that's just a, that's a way to, to experience a brand in a really fun way. That's very memorable. And that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, it's, it's not just that Great Clips is is on the side of Mohawk warrior. It's not just because we play a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, stuff on the jumbotron for great clips or commercials or have great banners in the seats and stuff for people to see. It's, I think that pit party experience, I think that makes the whole partnership 10 times better. And I think the most effective brand marketing I've ever seen in motorsports. Uh, and people need to come out to Monster Jam just to experience that if they want to see marketing done well, come out to Monster Jam. Yeah, so they have uh, kind of like a meet and greet um, before the event where you sa- probably sign posters and autographs and things, and uh, they can get to, to see you, interact with you, and get a haircut and all that stuff too? Yeah, they don't do haircuts, but everything else, yes. You know, the, <laughs> the, the drivers are wide open. You know, the lines are open, so people get to go up and they get to see, you know, my 12-foot tall truck right there in person. And a lot of times, a lot of the pit parties are on the track itself, so they can look and see the dirt and see how – to all that nine foot jump really looks. And it's like, man, that's pretty intimidating. Um, yeah. uh, you know, they can go up and meet grave digger, you know, they can meet El Toro Loco and all these different brands that's monster jam owned, but it's cool, man. And when you get to go meet grave digger, knowing that that truck's been around for 43 years and you're doing it while you get a Mohawk gelled up and all this cool <laughs> stuff. Like it's, it is a lot of fun. Fans love it. The drivers love it. It's three and a half hours though, man. It's, it's a long experience for a driver and, and I'm, I, you know, by the time I get in the truck after the pit party, before the event starts, I climb up, I'm all belted in. I've got the, my, you know, my shoulder harness on my neck harness, all that stuff. I'm like leaning against my belt, falling asleep. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the anthem's coming on. We're about to go drive a, you know, a, again, a 12,000 pound machine and I'm, you know, nodding off inside. So, you know, but that's a lot of fun just to be able to go out and, you know, do something that everyone dreams of. And here I get to kind of live the dream. Yeah. 
So talk about uh, some of the safety. You talk about the harnesses when you're strapping in. Um, what's the safety like in one of these vehicles? So a lot of people don't realize, I mean, I, I, I jokingly say I'm a professional crash test dummy, <laughs> Yeah. you know, and, but Simpson racing and, and all these guys that create the racing, the, the, all the safety stuff. It's amazing because they don't get the same data at a NASCAR event or formula one or, or any of these groups, because there's just not enough crashes. And a lot of times if there is a crash, it's so violent. They're not, you know, they're not innovating a product They're you know, it's, it's a miracle if someone lived through it kind of a situation. And, uh, and it's a testament to how far the safety equipment has come. We crash all the time. So when, when Simpson has an idea or they're innovating a product, a lot of times it gets sent to us first. Yeah. And, and we even sent Simpson up to our test facility in Illinois. We sent two of the guys cause they weren't really listening to us. It's like they thought they knew. And we were going, that's fine and great in theory, but guys, this is what we're experiencing inside the truck. Oh, yeah, it can't be that way. It's like, well, and then finally, Monster Game got sick of them responding that way and sent them up there. To out The two guys, they all they did was go out and they hit a race lane, which is the most tame jump, right? It's just a little roller, basically. The first guy drove the truck straight back to the pit area and refused to do it anymore. <laughs> he got out of the truck. He said, Nope, I'm not doing this. I was like, Yeah, I bet you do. The other guy was a lot tougher and kind of adjusted and got got through it a lot better. And we ended up letting him ha- hit a couple freestyle jumps too to like really feel it. Ever since then, that second guy has been wide open to us. Like, you know, oh, okay. So it's doing this. Oh, okay. What if we did this differently? And, and that's that's what's enabled us to really sit down with them and make it better. But they it made them listen to us and realize that maybe they don't know everything. And they like to be the expert in safety, but the only way you can be an expert in safety sometimes is to experience it, right? So it's cool because we get all the, the the best safety gear, but everything's pretty basic. I mean, it's all about the neck harness. It's it's two things. It's securing the pelvis. And I don't think most drivers out there understand what that looks like, securing the pelvis in the seat and how the pelvis – but if you can secure the pelvis correctly – then, then the spine movement, the neck movement, whiplash, all that stuff really drastically reduces. Hmm. So securing the pelvis, number one, and then secondly is securing the neck and that head movement. And, and if you get those two things right, you know, when we jump these trucks 45 feet in the air, you would be blown away at how soft it feels. You know, yeah. it should be very violent. Sometimes it is. But for the most part, it's, it's really not that bad, which is kind of and crazy so- to say. I would assume you're using like a Hans device of some yep, sort. Yep. I like the Hans. Uh, some guys use the hybrids. Uh, I still see a couple R3s out there that live. I still own an R3. I haven't used it since my top fuel days. But yeah, I mean, the Stillo, I, I just wear a Stillo helmet with a, a Hans uh, neck restraint. And, you know, we've got a seven point belt system. And, and the reason why I love the seven point is because that's what it does. It helps secure the pelvis more. And, That's interesting and, you say that. I would have never thought that the pelvis would be so important, but I guess it's the center part of your body kind of, right? Yeah, it is. It, it's like a fulcrum point. So, yeah, and that seven point does wonders because what happens is, you know, people that are listening won't be able to see my hand do this, but if the pelvis is able to, if, if my the bottom of my palm is a pelvis and it slides forward, well, you see what my hand is doing right there and it kind of scorpions your spine. And so what, what that's doing to the top right there, if that's the tip of your neck, it's causing that motion where it's actually, it's throwing your neck forward in a way like that. 
So if the pelvis doesn't move, the the neck, and, and you, then you can go up there and secure the neck with the, the proper restraint and with the proper tightness and everything, the movement is a straighter movement. You're not having to dip. And sometimes it also when the pelvis slides forward, it actually moves the body downward a little bit, which changes the way the belts affect the body. So, uh, yeah, and, and that's the other piece is everyone's like, oh, do you, what about even two-inch belts versus three-inch belts? The width of the shoulder straps. We've, you know, Monster Jam, we found out that uh, the the three-inch belts on the pelvis work pretty well, but some of us run two-inch belts on the on the pelvis because it's all about the pelvic bone, like mm. right there on that that bone that when you press down your pelvis, you can feel. And and so, uh, but on the shoulders, we found that two-inch wide belts work way better than three-inch wide because if it's too much width, it's not, it's too much coverage and it's not actually grabbing your body uh, quickly enough. And the two inch belts, even though you would think it, it would hurt more, it's actually secures it better. And it's able to kind of grab onto the, all the important critical parts of your body to slow it down and keep it from moving better. So yeah, it's not always about coverage. Two inch belts actually, you know, the, the data that they're getting two inch belts actually tend to slow your body movement down better than even three inch belts. Sounds like they've done the research, a lot of scientific information out there on it. Yeah. And, and uh, people love to see this too. We, we actually have ratchet straps. I know some of the dirt track guys are starting to do that, but we have ratchet uh, ratchets on our, our lap belts now. Right. Well, and we, and I say now, I mean, as long as I've been around the sport, they've had, they probably run ratchets for 15 years, but that's the only way we could get tight enough and secure our pelvis enough to be able to like limit our movement it is literally ratcheting ourselves down into the seat. And I can absolutely tell you that people do not have their neck restraint tethers tight enough. They, they're going throughout out these and they're way too loose. And what happens is if there's that much movement on a bad crash, they're almost getting a, their heads getting a run up before that neck restraint catches and that's going to that's going to cause more damage than people realize if they if they have a loose neck restraint cuz it's going to give their head run up into that point of when the when it grabs it to slow it down and it's going to make it worse. Okay, yeah. You know, talking about the uh the pelvis straps, we just had um I don't know if you're familiar, but I work as a racing coach for sports cars at the track here in Vegas and hmm. uh the other day we had a charity event for uh, disabled disabilities and we had a lot of paraplegic people there and they were doing ride-alongs in the in the race cars but hmm. they can't really restrain themselves at all and we don't have the normal seven-point harness like you're talking about so it was just a regular seatbelt. so we had to use extra straps around their pelvis to help them to not move around the car and also around their yeah. head so huh. I, that was really cool we i've never seen them do that before um so it's cool to see that in the cars but I come from the motorcycle racing community, sport bikes as well. And uh, last year, I was a coach for the for the bikes in Michigan at the racetrack at Gingerman Raceway. And we had uh, uh, a disabled guy just pitted next to me. And uh, his dad came over to me and said, hey, can you help uh, catch and release? I'm like, sure. What are you what are you talking about? I don't know what this is. <laughs> so his, his son um, was in a wheelchair. He couldn't use his legs. He could use his upper body just fine. And so he had a system where his dad and somebody else would just catch the bike when they come to the pits because he can't put his feet down. Huh. Uh, and he straps himself to the motorcycle, just like he's got mag magnets on the bottom of his feet that go to the foot pegs uh, so his feet don't come off. And then he, he straps himself, his legs to the tank in a certain fashion. And it's really cool to see. And then when he's released, he just puts it in gear, make sure nobody's coming, 
hits first, drops the clutch, and goes. Wow. So and just, and, then, and just rides, huh? And just rides. And I saw him on track. I was like, holy crap, he's not slow. He's he's actually <laughs> a racer. He races and he's got a team of uh, similarly disabled people who yeah. uh, I'd love to have him on the podcast one day. But uh, it's really cool. You know, whether you're in a car or a bike, you can still ride or drive. We had uh, the team owner for this for the company who came over. I won't say his name, but um, he was in the same situation. He was a paraplegic and uh he was driving with his mouth he was blowing a certain way to stop the car he would blow a different direction to increase the speed i'm like that's amazing wow that's crazy steering i didn't see how he was steering but um maybe just blowing to the right or to the left i'm like you better not get air (laughs) man that's incredible but that that goes to tell you i mean i wonder i wonder where all this stuff's going to be in 10 years and, and, and even the video game stuff, I think that's teaching us a lot as well. Like that, that marrying technology and how to, you know, and, and you hear those, the conversations about like a driverless cars. I can't imagine doing that where people are just, you know, running them from a video game back in the pit area. And it's a driverless vehicle. Like surely not, surely that's not where motorsports are heading. No, well, maybe think, they are. I think it'd be cool to try it. I think we have yeah. probably the technology to do it. So we should do it. However, that's not going to take over all the racing. That's going to be like the race. So, you know, the problem with the simulators, I have one in front of me. They're great. They're really, really good for force feedback for your hands, but you don't get the G force. Um, Mm. You can get some of the, the hap, what do you call it? The touch feedback, the haptatic. I don't know how to say that. Where Mm -hmm. where you feel the, the pulses and the curbings and all that and the gear shifts. They have things called a butt kicker, which produce that. But you cannot replicate G-Force unless you're in a car that's moving. Mm. So you're just yep. not going to understand what the limit of the car is going to feel like when you're in the car from the simulator. So that's the biggest difference is you just don't feel the, the forces. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, and I wonder too, like when you think about just the evolution of motorsports and the vehicles and like, I know you're not going to, you're not going to be able to push the, I don't think you'll be able to push the vehicles and the bikes harder without a trained driver on it to your point with the G forces. And I don't even know the value of it because people don't watch even monster jam. They like seeing the truck do something, but the reason why it blows people away is knowing that there's a human being inside of the vehicle doing it. Right. That's experiencing that crash in that time. And, and it's not just to see a truck come apart or it's not just to see the car blow apart or go 200 miles an hour around a racetrack. So that's kind of where I, you know, your modern day gladiators in such a way that, and even monster jam has encouraged us with this. They're like, Hey, after something cool happens and you get out of the truck, like take your helmet off. So people see that you're a human being and that you're, yeah. a, you're not some robot that just pulled that move off. Like you're a human yeah. being just like them. That's, and that's it's inspiring. Way more, it's way more impressive. Right. It's like, wow, he can do that. Uh, yeah. That's amazing. Like I didn't think that was possible. Yeah. That's exactly it. So, and I think if we're just going to continue to evolve and innovate, people got to understand that people that do remarkable things, like they've, they've mastered their craft, but they're not better human beings than you, you know, like they're not, they're not more special than the person that wants to do that thing. And I remember being 17 and that was my goal to be a professional top fuel driver. 
And, and I just, I almost couldn't even believe that it was possible for me to do that because I would look at the Tony Schumachers out there and the John Force and, and, and these guys that have been doing that for years and go, man, I can't be them. And that's, that's half of the problem. Cause you're like, and again, you go back to the, the, what we talked about earlier, that better, the best version of yourself, like is the best version of me becoming Tony Schumacher? No. Right. The best version of me is, is a Bryce Kenny version. But back when you're 17, you have to believe in that stuff. You're inspired. We all have heroes. And it's just realizing that the, even though we have people that motivate us and heroes out there in the motorsports world, at some point, we've got to be the ones that are, that, that believe it until we become it. You know, it's not a fake it till you make it mindset. That's, it's not a bad thing to tell yourself, but that's why you're still struggling with imposter syndrome. Like if you want to make the switch, from feeling like an imposter to someone that actually pulls off stuff, make that mindset shift. Go from fake it till you make it to believe it until you become it. Like believe that you are that that driver until you become it. And if you're if you're willing to hang on to that belief for 40 years, I'm telling you it'll happen. Yeah. Most people aren't willing to to go that long and they say I want to go and do that. And it's like, "Oh, well, if it took you 40 years to do it, would you would you still stick it out?" And 90% of the time people say no, they wouldn't. And I'm like, well, that's then you've already put a timestamp on your dream and your goal. So I'd tell you to don't waste your time. Like go find a better one because you're going to give up when it gets hard. Um, but if people have the courage to stick that out and to believe it until they become it, they, I, I sincerely believe they will. It's like the story of a KFC guy, right? Uh, Colonel Sanders. He yeah. was like in his seventies before he really got famous and sold his recipe. I mean, that's yeah. like a long time to wait, but he, he made it. <laughs> Do you live in Vegas? I do now, yes. Okay. Are you where are you from originally? Michigan. I lived in Michigan for 30 years. I moved out here in uh early January to for this job. And oh, uh yeah. Yep. Check so yeah. Right. Michigan. You said KFC. I'm 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 trying to think, man. Michigan, surely there's a better chicken joint than KFC, but you're right, man. Colonel Sanders bringing it home. I, I've got family in Kentucky, so that's what I I uh now all of a sudden I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I skip breakfast. I'm gonna eat lunch in a little bit. Oh, there you go. <laughs> So uh, you're in North Carolina now, is that right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, I've not raced at that that track uh, there in Vegas, your track. But I there was a half a chance a couple of years ago. I I considered moving to Vegas. I don't know how close we were to it, but Chris Angel kind of became a, a buddy because uh, I do a lot of stuff in pediatric cancer, and his son uh, his son has had two bouts of pediatric cancer. So we met through Monster Jam because his kids loved monster jam and stuff like that and at one point we were talking about starting a razor rental business out there what's the uh big riding area with all the blm land and stuff mm, i couldn't tell you the name of it <laughs> it's like 45 minutes from the strip but everyone goes anyway we were trying to figure out a way to start this razor rental business and we were gonna start we, we i say we try to figure out a way it was really just how to manage it and pull it all off. And for a split second, you know, I was even considering moving out there to start this and run it with Chris Angel. Like, you know, yeah. I, I guess I'd just go to Planet Hollywood all weekend and watch Chris Angel mind freak shows. And then, you know, during the week, go out there and and uh, rent, rent uh, razors and go on, you know, crazy rides with everybody or something. I don't know. But yeah, I do love Vegas. One of my favorite places to go for Monster Jam uh, back when we went out to UNLV stadium and uh, that's where we did world finals for years until about three years ago so it's got to be one of the coolest fan bases in the world in my opinion yeah it's a lot of people from all over the world really it's uh global here um i just moved here for for work so uh 
for this job as a racing coach. So I'm working with about 23 brands right now. I'm not coaching in all of them yet. We have a tiered system based on seniority, basically, and how well you're doing in the car. But uh, right now I'm working with uh, the brands Acura, Audi, um, Aston Martin, doing Corvette, Nissan, hmm. um, doing the Shelby with the uh, Porsches, Ferrari, Lamborghini, and there's one more I think I'm missing. But uh, it's a lot of fun. It's uh, yeah. interesting being coaching uh, the general public. Um, typically about 70% of our students, I'd say have never been on, on any racetrack ever before. Oh my um, gosh. And so we, we give them a classroom session, 20, 30 minutes, talk about passing the cones, the cars, um, how to drive. And, uh, they have to have a driver's license as a basic requirement and obviously pay for the experience. And you can choose from any one of our cars. We have a fleet of 50 cars, but like 23 different models, hmm. um, anywhere anything from sports cars to race cars and everything in between and uh then we go into the car we do five to 50 laps depending on how much you purchased and uh i'm the i'm the guy in the right seat giving you instruction and feedback on track helping you drive the car and not spin it and go as fast as you want to go and so uh yeah it's, <laughs> what's it's amazing. the uh, what's the turnover rate for <laughs> coaches doing that like is I, it uh, do are is there any are there any guys that have been coaches for 15 years kind of a deal? Yeah, is for there? sure. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's uh it's a really good place to work. Um they have uh a lot of cool really cool cars. It's a really good atmosphere. A lot of uh good people who work there for 10 plus years, many of them. And uh so it, it is stressful at times because you have people who don't know how to drive and you're teaching them, but I look at it as look, they're not trying to do something bad. They're, they don't just don't understand. So just imagine they're your best friend and try to help them. You mm. know, like they're just trying to learn most of them. Um, some people have a hard time learning. Some people accept it really easily. Um, you know, the people with the biggest egos who don't know, who've never been on a racetrack typically are the worst because yeah. they just have a hard time learning. They're like, I've been driving for 40 years. What's this young kid know? I'm like <laughs> I have over 10,000 laps at this one track, you know, uh, please listen to what I have to say. And you'll go really fast and have fun. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting gig. <laughs> and and how often do you guys as coaches get to go out there and run the cars yourself? Every morning we warm them up. We do a couple laps to put heat in the tires, you know, make mm -hmm. sure the engines are working properly. Nothing's in limp, limp mode. Tires feel good. Right air tire pressures. Um, but we're not pushing them to 100% in the morning. Yeah. So we're just kind of warming them up. But uh, we do drive there. I've driven there twice on my off day and uh hmm. paid to ride drive the cars and it's a blast i get a coach next to me and i'm learning i'm like really? i don't know everything like please teach me tell coach me like you would any other student huh and um like i'm i got out of the car i'm like wow i just learned a whole bunch of stuff wow <laughs> what's the what do you think the one of those lessons that you as a you know that's experienced like what was the last big lesson that you just learned yeah. That, so that I just drove uh, think about. a couple of weeks ago. I just drove uh, one of the slowest cars at the track because, you know, to drive a slow car fast takes even more effort. Um, hmm. So I uh, I did the Aston Martin, my first car in May. So about five months ago, and I got the lap record for that car on my first lap. Hmm. Um, and I improved by lap five a little bit more. Another couple hundredths of a second. That one. I didn't say, say I learned a whole lot. Just I learned about how the car felt because I never pushed that car at the limit before this. The the next one I did, the Porsche GT4, 
um, I had Sean in the car as my coach and um, being a slower car, I wasn't taking the right lines. I needed to adjust my lines more to be wider, use more of the racetrack on the Aston Martin. It's more of a faster car. You can take straighter lines and not lose anything. So hmm. I just need to use more track in the Porsche because it's a little slower. It's more of like a go-kart line, I guess, rather than a, you know, formula one straighter line. Um, so use more track, but also more rotation on the steering wheel. I didn't realize it was possible to have that much steering angle on the wheel as I'm accelerating hard. Hmm. He's like, that's fine. Just more, more rotation, more. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Uh, huh. I tried it. And I did it. And at this point you're pushing, um, I got second place by just a few tenths of a second over everybody who's ever driven the car. Huh. And so um, podium both times. But when you're at the limit like that, you're sliding everywhere. Like mm -hmm. it's just a part of it. I mean, you're not, trying to but you're floating your front tires across the pavement and they're not exactly going on the line that you're having them on right you're it's pushing wide which is yeah. fine because you're carrying so much speed um so you just have to adapt a little bit to the car that you're in but the the biggest lesson i learned recently was just more rotation is fine hmm. um, in certain instances yeah if the car's a little slower and you can use more of the track you're saying Yep. Use more yep. track and more, more rotation on the wheel is what I'm mm -hmm. working on right now. So yeah, I have a, you talked about not wanting to read or reading to get better. I have a, a bookcase over here. I'm looking at with uh, about 15 motorsports related books. That's all about like suspension components and like electronic settings and like uh, just more details of different coaches and their style of coaching or like uh I have one on getting better tips, you know, after yeah. coaching. So just like trying to get better at all aspects of it, because I don't know everything. There's still, after a dozen years of being in the industry, I know I'm not, not knowing everything. I'm a terrible mechanic. You know, I can still build a bike from scratch, but I wouldn't consider myself a mechanic. Right. Yeah. So there's always more things I can get better at. And so sure you're in the same boat. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, and that's part of mastering your craft, right? I mean, it's, it's, it is the difference maker for people. And if people understand that it's, it's a lot of little lessons that all add up. And then all of a sudden you're like, where, where'd this guy come from skill wise, or where'd this guy yeah. come from with this? It's like, Oh, he got lucky. And that's one of my favorite things for people to say when they say it to me, because it's not that I want to correct them. I, I, I want to look at them and go, if you only knew, like if yeah. you only knew what I, what I did for years late at night when no one was giving me a shot. Right. And, and those little lessons that I would take and I'd, I'd put it away and I would know that one day I would use it. And that's what some of the stuff, you know, if I'm on a radio interview and I get thrown a sideball question by a media guy, I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm, I'm batting a thousand on correct answers. Cause I don't. Uh, but I, I, I constantly get people that respond to me afterwards and come up and say, man, you're really good at this. And it doesn't make me feel any better either because their opinion didn't matter when they had a negative one. And it doesn't matter either when it's a positive one. And I don't want to say I just discount and say, you know, like, don't talk to me or something like I take the compliment, but it's all people are never going to know the the time spent mastering your craft. No one. And even someone like yourself and where you're going over the next couple of years, like even myself, I can respect high performers because I know that they went through a process, but even another high performer can't understand that other high performers process and, and what they had to endure other than just res the respect that knowing it had to happen. And I just, I don't know, maybe that's, that's the probably the last piece of advice I'd give anybody. And I'm sure Eric, that you'd agree with this. You cannot negotiate the price 
of success. You can only pay it. You know, we see quotes like that. I don't that sounds like a Kobe Bryant quote or something, <laughs> but um, but it's so true. Like you can't negotiate with it. And if you spent half the time just doing it as you do trying to negotiate and cut the requirement in half for yourself and the effort in half, if you just did it in that same amount of time, you'd master your craft way, way faster. And so I'm just a big believer in that. I think we can all do more than what we think we can do. And and it's not going to make you happy to be in the process, but the happiness will absolutely come when you find that meaning. And I think that's I think that's what all of us should really do. And the cool thing that you're experiencing, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but your ability to master your craft and getting better tips right after you're saying goodbye and all that stuff, like that's huge. And the impact though, that a book like that can make, not just on your bank account, but literally like, I know that you've had those cool moments with your customers and your, your students where you see these light bulbs go off. They had the time of their life out there yeah, and they're forever different. Like they're going to be forever different because of the experience that you help them have. That's going to be the, ha that's that happiness as a byproduct element instead of the goal. Yeah. It's that's cool. where all of a sudden you're fulfilled. You go home and you find meaning in, in your efforts. And that's when mastering your craft really does pay off. And they get better at actually them driving. Like they, they improve their skills. They have much better understanding after 10 minutes, like yeah. uh, 10, 15 minutes in the car with me. I guarantee you, you go faster. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like a money back guarantee. I don't know if I can say that, but like, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's, uh, it's very rewarding as a coach, like terrible lap one better lap two, make more, more mistakes, lap three, fix it by lap four, nailed it, lap five, lap six, there go full throttle in three different places on the racetrack. Lap seven, they're like, I get it now. Lap eight, they're like, new personal best. And and then we exit. They're like, oh, it's over. Oh, I just got, I was just getting good. I'm like, yeah. I know, this is great. What car are you driving next? I'm like, I don't know, but I got to find another one. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's really cool to see them improve and like massive improvements from first lap to last lap. They'd say all the time, I didn't know that was possible. I like to say, was that kind of what you expected out of the car today? Did you have fun? They're like, oh, completely exceeded my expectations. I had no idea. I could go that fast and stay on the racetrack and do it safely. And I would have never even tried to push as hard if you weren't next to me. Mm. You know, I would have probably gone off the track 14 times in five laps if you weren't sitting there. Yeah. So um, it's it's really cool. And um, yeah, people who are there for birthdays or celebrations just got their license two days ago, 18 years old. You know, um, we get uh, we had a, like an 87-year-old woman drive yesterday. Wow. She didn't go that fast, but she was out there. She was in a Porsche. And I think I lapped her a few times, but it's cool to see her out there. You know, it's like, that's great. I love it. There's no speed limits. There's no minimum. There's no maximum. No one's going to dog on you for going slow. Like I'm trying to get my mom out there to go. And I'm like, it doesn't matter how fast you go. Like, just go out there, have fun, experience a car, like try a yeah. Lamborghini, like just see what it's like. How often do you get to drive a Lamborghini? And then right. when we're out there and, and you happen to pass somebody else who's going slower, I'm like, you just pass a Ferrari. Look at that. How often do you say you pass a Ferrari on the racetrack? You never say that. <laughs> you get so, any kind of family discount for, for mom or what? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've okay. used them all up now uh, okay. for, the end for the year. Uh, my, my family came out and my brother drove, my dad drove, my brother drove twice. Um, so he's liking it. Uh, he's a racer too, but he races uh, human powered sports. So he okay. does triathlon. He does Ironmans. Mm. He's done, uh, I think he's got another one coming up in a couple of weeks. But mm. I think he's done like eight or nine Ironman full length triathlons. And Man. so 
on a random Tuesday, he'll say like, I'm only doing a marathon today. Not a big deal. Whatever. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Just a marathon. Yeah. <laughs> that's so, crazy, man. Yeah, well, that's super- awesome. I mean, I think that mindset that your students are going through is exactly what, you know, my book geared for life's all about. And you, know, you would imagine that that person on that first lap trying to run like they were on lap eight. It's like to go through the lessons that they need to go through the aha moments, those light bulb moments, each lap is like its own gear, you know, and it's, and it's just finding the next gear. It's just pushing it this one more way. And then you push it from that skill set to the next skill set. And then before you know it, eight laps later, you're flying. And yeah. I just would hope that that's what people really can do with, with whatever goal they've got, whatever their dreams are and what they're wanting out of life. Be a little bit more patient with yourself, you know, understand who you want to become by lap eight, <laughs> you yeah. know, who, what, what kind of driver do you want to be by the time you hit the finish line? Um, and then just apply it one step at a time, you know, whether someone wants to call it baby steps, I think that's a little too small, right? It's, it's, you know, what we do and, and us as car guys, like we get it, we get this at a level that people haven't thought of yet. And uh, if they just start to find their transmission, man, that's when, that's when life starts to accelerate. That's when momentum uh, is found. So I would love it if people go and, and, and uh, pick up a copy of my book, I know it's like you said, you can't say money back guarantee, but I would, you know, you, if you, if someone out there, they, they purchase my book and, and it doesn't help you find me on Instagram at warrior Bryce, send me a DM. I will absolutely refund your money. I'm that confident in it. Not because I'm a great author, uh, but because I know the feedback I've already gotten and it's, it's countless people are, are saying, man, these stories really hit home for me. This was my biggest takeaway. And, and I've seen people working at a level that they've not worked on their dreams at uh, in ever in their life. And that, that makes me really super happy because man, if we're going to become geared for life, that's exactly what it is. We, we need to find our next gear. That's it. Right. We need to find the right gear at the right time. And when you can do that, whether you're on a highway trying to go 75 miles an hour, racetrack trying to go 130 or a, a, a pathway going up the mountainside that, that requires you to be back in first gear, that's what it's all about. Knowing when to shift into the right gear at the right time is critical. And so stop trying to make life work in first gear. You yeah. know, at some point, you got to find second. Let us help you do it. Let me help you do it. And uh, try Geared for Life. I don't think you'll regret it. And, you know, some some cars now have not just six gears. They have seven, eight, even nine gears on these some of these cars, yeah. plus reverse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of gears. <laughs> a lot For more sure. than one, right? <laughs> yeah, and and so uh, um, talking about life and also track stuff, you know, I don't think you should start at 100% when you're starting something. Like first lap, if you start at 100%, you're going to scare the crap out of yourself. You're going to get tired mm-hmm. out. You're probably going to want to quit. Um, one, one bit of information I found out from a coach before me, Jason DeSalvo, I took his Academy speed Academy years ago, probably 11 years ago now. And he said, go slow to go fast. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you talking about? Why would I go slow on the racetrack? He's like, well, if you can't do it perfectly at 90%, you think you can do it better at hundred mm-hmm. percent? No, you should master it at 60%. Mm-hmm. Go to 70. Did you make a mistake? Go back to 60 mm-hmm. Master it at the lower level then move up to the next one. If you don't master it, then you're just going to be making more mistakes and crashing. Mm-hmm. And um, it's re- that's a really expensive way to do it. You should start slower, get better, then do it faster. Well said. Yeah. I love it. That's Simple. that's that's exactly how life is, right? So yep. I'm pumped that you found this new gear uh, and, and going out for this new job. And 
Um, I know it's pushing you and challenging you and I, I know it's rewarding as well. So is there like an end game for you? Like, what do you hope happens to you from this kind of experience? So I'd love to stay with Speed Vegas Exotics Racing for many years to come. I don't have any plans on moving or anything like that, but I would like to get into professional road racing with motorcycles, motorcycle road racing with Moto America. I earned my professional license for that like eight years ago. However, just like you struggled with the finding the finances and funding to do it, that's kind of the same boat I'm in. So I'm doing a push right now, changing up my proposals and marketing plans for, for this coming 2024 season to try to find the right partners to do that. Also, I'd like to really get involved with uh, a higher level of go-kart racing, whether it's tag or shifter carts or even the Sodi series at a rental cart place. doesn't matter. I just want to be in a cart. Um, I'm fast in carts, cars, motorcycles, supermoto, flat track, motocross. Mm. It's about all of it. So uh, I'd really like to do the the pavement stuff for the carts and the motorcycles. Ideally, if I had the funds, I would love to do sports cars as well. Um, yeah. That seems like a, another level as far as the funding goes. So the, the carts and the motorcycles tend to be a little cheaper than the sports cars, of course. Um, but yeah, and race at any series really professionally is the goal uh, in a couple of years. Um, so it just takes money, right? It takes takes yeah. a lot of money and effort and uh, finding the right people to make it happen. You know, I have a lot of friends who uh, I've passed and beat in racing who are still racing at the pro level. So it's like, ah, uh, I'm going to yeah. get them. I'm just, give me a minute. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. We well, just got to keep pressing, man. You know, and that's what, if there's a timestamp on it, it's not a real dream. And uh, you know, for, for what all of us are doing, None of us have it all figured out either. And, and it's like, you, most people stop right before their big break. I don't even feel like I've gotten my big break. And a lot of people would say that I'm crazy because a lot of people would, would allow you to chop their left leg off completely in order to, to do what I do. And so I don't say that lightly. I just, I think it's crazy to think we ever arrive. And I, here I get to fly in, tear up a truck, and I fly home. I don't even fix it. I, you know, guys fix it all week long. Like, it's I, it's an incredible job to have. But I think a, a big reason is is, is motorsports, it's got to be the most fragile industry out there. It has to be, you know. And then, you know, here, if you went and landed that first big deal and you got to go pro because you found the funding to do it, you're not, you're going to maybe take a day to like smoke a cigar and maybe have a little bourbon or something, <laughs> but uh day two, you're going to go trying to find the, the sponsorship for the following year. And, and that's, what's hard. It's like, you know, we were always think having to look at the end of a contract. I don't think it's a bad idea. I think it's what makes motorsports people so awesome because we don't take anything for granted. I even, even though that there's some people, like I said earlier, that kind of negotiate the price instead of just paying it. I think that when we're going and we're trying to pursue things where we take it, yes, it's up to us. Yes. It's going to require something of us that, that we don't know that it's going to take, but man, like it's got to all build to something greater than just being in the seat, going around the track. Like that's that, that's that byproduct of happiness moment that we got to soak up. And if, if we're, if we're not careful as motorsports people, we we miss it. Like you land that first deal, like I'm saying, you might take a day to celebrate, but most of us don't. Like we get the contract signed, we take a big deep breath, and we go on to the next thing after we win that, make you know, have that win. 
And here we've been through losses for years and what we would call failures forever. And we don't take the time to celebrate the wins. And I'm a big proponent of doing just that. Like take the time to celebrate the wins. That's what can fuel us to go and, and do it all over again. But I also think it's what makes, like I said, motorsports people so dangerous in a good way is that we are so stubborn. I think we're some of the most committed dreamers in America. People oh, that have yeah. a dream in motorsports, and it's amazing, like the fact that you've you you haven't quit on your dream, and like here you're out in Vegas at Speed Vegas doing what you're doing, like that's huge. And some people would have thought, well, it's, if it's not pro, it's it's not. I'm not going to do it. It's like, man, that, that's one way to look at it. But what are you getting built in you now that is going to help you when you do? you know, finally click in and you're going to allow, it's going to, it's forcing you to look at marketing and creating value at a level that you wouldn't have seen it at had you gone pro a couple of years ago. And and you just have to look at it from that standpoint that it's going to put you in a position in racing higher down the road than the people that did get that win. I look back at my top fuel stuff. I'm glad that I failed. Dude, if I would have made it at 21 and made, and I was still doing it somehow, 14 years later, like I do, there's no way I would have thought about business and motorsports. I just wouldn't be doing it and running it at a level that I'm doing it now. And that I'll, and, and, and now I'm set up to do it when I'm 45 and 55, you know what I mean? Like I, now all of a sudden I, I, I see the formula. I get it. I get what has to be done. I don't know, you know, the, the, what will always change, but it, when the who is consistent and I've got such a grasp on who I want to be through that process, even if the what changes and the next big social media or the next, you know, now all of a sudden it's some other form of content or some other value add or AI, even yeah. though the what will change, if the who is consistent, then the what doesn't matter and the what will fall in line. So um, that's what I would, would encourage anybody. If you still have a dream or if you just, if, even if motorsports is just a hobby and kind of an escape, figure that out, figure out who you want to be through that process. And, and, uh, it'll never come back void. That effort will never come back void. Yeah. And well, in my whole journey of trying to find professional racing or just be on a bike or a car or a cart, just trying to be at the track, you know, I've ventured out into many different things. I started this podcast to help get mm -hmm. my name out there. I moved to a new city, 2000 miles away. Um, I started a business. I sell products online to help, you know, now not only can I, can you sponsor me? And I put, you know, the sticker on the bike type of thing, but also I can sell your product on my website. How many yeah. other companies can do that? Huh. Not very many that I know of nope. um, or who I actually have sold to all 50 States and 30 plus countries, Man. you know? So that's kind of cool. That's, an, that's my side gig in my spare time. Um, uh, I'm, I've been a coach for five different organizations from, um, from motorcycles, super bikes to exotic sports cars and, I've been the guy who teaches you how to get your license for the state of Michigan for uh, testing to get your license for a motorcycle. So I teach yeah. that course too. Um, and yeah, just trying to uh, trying to get my name out there as best I can, doing marketing for companies and things. So just trying yeah. to all these different little branches. Um, and actually from doing the podcast is why I think I moved out of state because I talked to a professional rider and he was like, well, I'm a coach for all these organizations. I'm like, well, how do I do that? He's like, with your resume behind you, I was all my trophies before. Uh, he's like, I'm sure you could. It's like, why don't you just ask them and I'm sure they'd hire you. And I did. And they did. <laughs> That's incredible. Right. I mean, it's like just talking to people. Yeah. 
Yeah. Being communication, right. Networking, the business mindset, you go back to those, those being a five tool driver, five tool motorsports person, I guess. Um, yeah. and being able to find those different gears, man, that's what it's going to take. And, uh, and it's getting more and more complex. And if anyone's still listening to this, it's like, you got people running at that level and, and just hoping your dream works out is crazy. Like at some point you got to get so good. They can't ignore you. That's what yeah, it's like about. That. Go get so good. They can't ignore you and, and stuff will, good stuff will start to happen. Just like for you, Eric, it's awesome, man. I like that. And so tell me, um, I know you guys have a lot of sponsors for Monster Jam uh, that help help build the car. Uh, who are some of the sponsors that uh, help you guys out? Well, so Great Clips is mine, like I've talked about uh, before. Lucas Oil is a big one. Uh, uh, BKT Tires, they manufacture all the tires. They, they do a lot of uh, agricultural and farm equipment stuff. Um, they do a lot low CRCs. I mean, I don't know how many RCs that they're selling now through the, they're, they're making them like little mini monster jam trucks, which are incredible. Mm -hmm. I got, got one over here. That's a grave digger version that, cool. uh, you know, just as it's sitting over there right now, it's probably worth about 800 bucks, maybe a mm thousand. -hmm. It's crazy, but they, thankfully they just sent it to me so I can demo it out. But, um, you know, all those cool partners are amazing, but I think what makes monster jam so unique is their bread and butter are there is their brands right so you know gravedigger does a hundred million dollars in merchandise just for that brand alone a year wow. like and that doesn't include the die cast stuff that we do through spin master now and that doesn't include all these other brands and, and obviously that's the biggest brand that monster jam owns so they're not doing a hundred million dollars in mohawk warrior merchandise i can confidently tell you but um, they do a ton in megalodon and el toro loco and but it's cool because they've always been like brand focused at, at a time as a driver, it's hard because, you know, that means they deprioritize the actual driver because they want us to be replaceable. They want the brand because they own the brand. They don't really own me. So I could tomorrow say I'm done driving. Well, they don't want the Mohawk warrior brand to die because Bryce yeah. Kenny said he's not going to drive anymore. And um, so that's, that's the, that's the real key to it. And I think that I think even in drag racing and these different motorsports, like the number on the side doesn't matter anymore, right? Even the company doesn't. I'm a big proponent of the fact that the reason why this Great Clips partnership has worked is because at first they didn't want to do a full-time sponsorship because they'd never done Monster Jam before. They, they weren't sure, like they thought, they had a theory it might work. But the reason they pulled the trigger is because they did a part-time sponsorship at the beginning because Monster Jam said, okay, we, we get that you don't want to, you know, invest in a whole truck, in an entire truck. We actually have a truck that we're not planning on using next year that is called Mohawk Warrior. It has a Mohawk on it. Like, <laughs> you're a hair salon company. Perfect. This truck, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it was meant to be. So we could just do like an associate sponsorship deal and it could still be the Great Clips Mohawk Warrior but we'll attach it to an existing brand. And that was a huge success. So they did a two-year contract on that first deal. They ripped up the contract year one and did a bigger pro a bigger one. And they said, we want the whole truck. We want a full-time sponsorship. And they did a three-year deal um, after that. And so, and, and here we're in year seven of that partnership, I think. Yeah, going into year eight. And I, I still feel like we'll have another couple year runway uh, with great clips because the partnership is good. So, and, and I only say all that to say, if it was just the great clips, monster jam truck, I don't think it would have done well. 
the fact that it was a touch attached to a brand and enabled us to kind of push the Mohawk Warrior brand along with Great Clips, it mm. seemed less salesy. And and I don't know what the right solution is for this, but here you're talking about like the fact that you're pulling these B2B solutions for potential sponsors with with Air Swan Racing, like you're you're spot on with that. Like you're thinking about it differently because you're you're adding value in ways that other drivers just aren't going to be able to, and other race teams aren't because people are looking for partnerships. Not they they honestly don't think you're going to sell their product better than they can. They just don't, and yeah. and rightly so, right? Because you're not a salesman, you're a driver. But if you've got these value add additions like a website, and, and that's why people look at social media followers and stuff. And, and that, you know, if you had 200,000 followers and that that adds it in their bucket of going, oh, we've all of a sudden we're buying an influencer as well. And that's just another spoke to the wheel. Um, but I think that's what people need to think of almost branding out their vehicle in a way that it's not, you know, all these cool, funny cars back in the day for drag racing, like, you know, they, you know, there were all these you know, good names. Now I'm sitting here, brute force. That was John Force's big one. It was brute force. And then Wendy's came on and sponsored brute force. And then all of a sudden it got to the point where it was just Castrol. And now he runs the peak funny car. Um, but I still think we're missing a big opportunity with that. I mean, what if someone went out and built a brand around their social media with that car, they're trying to get sponsored, but made it a name. And then all of a sudden they're doing GoPro footage of onboard the beast Let's just call it, you know, and if it was the beast and, and it was like, now all of a sudden you're pushing this beast brand, even Ken block, right? Remember the, 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 uh, what do you call it? The unicorn. Yeah. Yeah. You remember the unicorn. Yeah. Like that's a terrible name, but it was still Hoonigan. Right. And, and it was, a it was you, all of us know that name unicorn versus that Mustang versus, um, you know, oh, it's number three, right? Kim or 43. We don't really, we don't associate, well, now we do since he passed, uh, but 43 with Kim Block. It wasn't about number 43, it was about the unicorn and what he was going to do with it. So anyway, I just went off on a whole tangent there, <laughs> but I do think it's going to become easier for brands to attach themselves to a bigger idea and a bigger IP and a concept versus a number or versus a driver themselves, unless that driver can become a, mm -hmm. a brand and a bigger entity to to sponsor. So that's kind of where I think motorsports has got to go. And we got to start theming out some of these vehicles and make it exciting for fans to attach themselves to it. Like we did yeah. with great clips. And have you uh, seen the type of series, like the drive to survive for formula one? What if they were yeah. to do something like that with uh, like monster jam? Yeah. So I, I know they have tried to sell the show at Monster Jam University. Um, and I, I think that they've, I know that they've got, they've been doing filming and stuff too. It's just a matter of finding the group that's going to actually buy it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think it's a no brainer because the Monster Jam University stuff is awesome. Like we've got coaches up there, you know, people from all walks of life, um, all genders and minorities and, and everything, right? Race, color, and creed. So to be able to have them up there running through Monster Jam University, I mean, it would be an awesome show. And then they're actually following them along in their career. I think it'll happen. It's just, I think the drive to survive was so well done. And it, I, I didn't quite even realize with Formula One stuff, the magnitude of everything until I, and I love the show. I think drive to survive is awesome. Um, and it makes you really want to attach yourself to, you know, the Max Verstappen's and the Lewis Hamilton's and just watching that rivalry. But the, the business side of that people, people, some people missed it. It's like the business, the business ad right now 
in Formula One is that show. Right? Yeah. It's that much. content. Yeah. It's Netflix. It's not the the eyeballs. It's Netflix. So yeah, that's where you think about the shift in, in value add for stuff goes. It's amazing the uh, the reaction from that series to people butts in the seat in the stadium is or at the racetrack. It's wild to see um, people signing up to watch Formula One uh, in record times in record fashion number of people um, crowd records four hundred thousand people an event. Um, they're saying that the Vegas event here in November in like a month is going to be the biggest sporting event of the country for the year. Oh gosh. So it's going to be the biggest one they've ever had ever. Yeah. So it's incredible. Hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. That's incredible. And they deserve (laughs) it because the Netflix stuff and, and, and here's what's cool that, that from what I understand that started from that, the head of formula one that kind of initiated all that. And I'm a big believer that because uh, he knew, like, if we can get this all going, it's going to pull in a fan base at a level that we've not been able to get to as a motorsport. And I heard I heard uh, Dale Jr. talking about this, and this is where NASCAR needs to get. This is where Monster Jam needs to get to. Uh, this is where Formula One needs to keep pressing on. Um, and all the big racing entities is Dale Jr. was on his podcast, and he said, he he was he's a big fan of Ross Chastain who rode the wall, you know, all around oh, the, yeah, to the yeah. finish line last November. I think that was like the one year anniversary I just saw pop up from a couple of days ago that, that happened. But Junior was talking about how NASCAR is missing a big opportunity to turn Ross Chastain into this national brand. He and he used the example. He said, and NASCAR doesn't do that because they don't want to promote the drivers. Same thing with Monster Jam, and I think it's a mistake. But Junior said, you know, my dad, Dale Earnhardt, was known as the Intimidator. He said, do you think that Dale Earnhardt just showed up one day at the racetrack and said, hey, guys, you can start calling me the Intimidator? He said, no. My dad showed up at a racetrack and NASCAR had those shirts created and started selling those shirts. And it was their baby. It was their concept. It was their idea. NASCAR was the one that started calling him the Intimidator. And that's all we know is Dale Earnhardt now is the Intimidator. And he said they they need to do that with Ross Chastain. They're missing a big opportunity to do it formula one has has realized that yeah red bull is big but if we can let people love or hate max verstappen if we can have people attach themselves to the driver again by giving and that's what netflix and that's what content should be that's what these podcasts should be right that's what um uh the stuff that you put on instagram it should allow people to see who you are because it'll either either allow them to love you or hate you but either way it's going to allow them to engage with you as a human being and that's what's missing but you've got to have nascar's got to understand they've got to start pushing that better monster jam absolutely needs to understand they've got to do that better uh like formula one and, and i think they're trying i think you know monster jam tries and wants to but they're not doing it effectively enough because at the end of the day, they still want me to be replaceable. That's a mistake. You got to roll your dice just like the drivers are rolling. I'm rolling the dice. What does this job qualify me for, Eric? <laughs> like, you know, what what right. job am I now qualified for because I've driven a Monster Jam truck for eight years? Nothing. If Unless I leverage this opportunity into the next thing, then I would just be done driving and that's it with my career. They don't see it as that. They, you know, someone like Monster Jam, and I'm not bad-mouthing them. They're my employer. I love these. I love the guys. I'm very thankful for my opportunity. And if it was my business, then I'd, I'd probably, I'd treat it the same way. But 
entities like NASCAR and Monster Jam and even NHRA, they're missing the golden opportunity to create these dynamics and these these heroes. You know, and that's what Dale Jr. was Jr. was talking about with Ross Chastain. Build up the hero and allow people to attach themselves or reject that individual. And now all of a sudden you've got fans of Formula One because they want to see Max go up against Lewis. And they want to see if Lewis Hamilton still has what it takes. I do. And I have still this day never sat and watched an entire Formula One race. I'm not. But I I watch it now and I, I watch and pay attention to the results because of Drive to Survive. Yeah, and it's it's like you're saying, it's all about the personalities. If if you don't mm-hmm. have any entity like a, a persona or like a uh, your character, who do you who are you rooting for? You're just watching cars race against each other. It's about yeah. who's in the car, like you're saying. It's not about the AI or the. It's about some of the technology, but it's also about the person behind the wheel and uh, how they feel about whatever subject. Sometimes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So I think that's the way stuff's going to change, but that's what really what we're talking about with building new content, isn't it? I mean, when we're talking about marketing and and all this different stuff and partnerships, I mean, it's it's creating the type of content, you know, feel free to go out there and create the kind of content you want to create. Sometimes people try to create content thinking, well, what's going to get good engagement? Stop doing that. Just start posting and and kind of like let people, give people behind the scenes. Some of my best content to this day has been on TikTok, where I voiced over what I was thinking while I was showing a video of what I, I did in the truck. I'm voicing over the decisions I'm making in that moment hmm. because it's just a different thing. Now, I think I, I think that communication-wise, like I think people attach themselves a little bit better when I use my voice. I, I've always used my voice as a tool, and uh, I've I've practiced trying to do it that way. So it doesn't mean that that's like some hidden niche. I think it's a niche for me, but that, but it's a good example. It's like, if I've realized that that's worked, typically if I do a video like that, the best ones are slow-mo videos where the truck is articulating and doing something. And I'm walking through almost like a tutorial of what either the truck is doing or going through my mind. Those usually always go get half a million views or more. And the one that's gotten the most got 6 million views on TikTok because it was, it was, it was just different. And yeah. I enjoyed doing that. It wasn't because I wanted to hear my, myself talk. It was because it was fun for me to give that tutorial. And that's really what the point I'm trying to make is go out there and make stuff that that maybe align in one of those things you're really good at. You know, if someone was really good at legal stuff in motorsports, why not do more content around the legality of some um, some decision NASCAR just made? You know, they yeah. just DQ'd Ryan Blaney and then requalified him the next day. Right. They DQ'd him for the their saying their template on the car was uh, you know, he failed that inspection. And then the next day he said the template was wrong. Well, what what's the legality around that? Now, so if Eric Swan, if you were super good at the legal side of motorsports, and I know that that's not your your thing, nor is it mine, but if you it was, why wouldn't you be talking about the legal aspects of can NASCAR do this and what are the implications of for the other teams? Anyway, you get the point. But yeah. finding that niche, it it is also about finding those gears that you're really good at. And being so good, they can't ignore you. And then being able to share it with the world. I like it. Very well said. Um, so where can people find you online? Where are you out there on the internet? I know you said you got a TikTok. Yeah, pretty much everything is at Warrior Bryce. Okay. At Warrior Bryce, Bryce with a Y. And um, I, I I do the most on Instagram and TikTok. I, I've, I've slowed down on TikTok. They, they just keep screwing around with the algorithm. And I'm like, I'm not chasing you guys around. <laughs> 
Um, yeah. and so I've probably done less and less on TikTok, but I, but I've got the biggest following. So I still kind of go over there and pop on that. But, uh, Facebook, my athlete page, you can just find it. Uh, it's, it's just Bryce Kenny is my ath- athlete page, but I still think the URL for that is at warrior Bryce too. So anyway, when in doubt type in at warrior Bryce and uh, give us a follow on YouTube and all those things as well. And, and please pick up a copy of geared for life. Uh, not because I, it's funny, most of the, any of the money that we make off of this book is kind of funneled back into some, some kind of charitable things that we're doing with the book. Um, so, so don't hear me say that thinking I'm, I'm here to sell a bunch of books, uh, go pick up a copy of the book. Cause I truly believe in my heart. It'll help you. It'll help get you where you want to go and help you find that next gear, uh, that you never knew you had. And if, if I can help one person do that, then this whole project and, gear in and of itself of learning how to write a book and get it published and all that stuff. It'll have been worth it. So I, I believe in you guys and Eric, I appreciate you having me on too. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. Um, thanks for coming on. And I just want to talk about uh, your, the voice, uh, the voice acting or the voice voiceovers that you do for the book. Uh, what did you learn in that whole process? I'm sure that was interesting. Like you can't mess up one word, can you, right? You got to read it. <laughs> oh, you're talking about the audible voice uh, version. Yeah. yeah. Audible man. I did go into a studio and it was a nice studio too. I was, I didn't know if I'd be like going to some dude's basement or something to record this thing or what went to the studio. And thankfully I was able to make mistakes and it was just one big file and some poor engineer out there had to go and just back it up and take out the, the, uh, the mistakes and stuff like that. But it was, man, it, it took me, so my book is not that big. Like when you get it, it's 200 pages, but it's big, it's big letters. And you know, it's, it's a six by nine book. So it's an easy read and it's 40,000 words. And you know, that's not that it's not like a huge book or anything. And it still took me, I think two sessions of four hours each or five hours each. So I was exhausted by the end of day two. And, uh, uh but man, I, I tell you what I learned a lot about was just how to authentically tell a story. You know, it's one thing to write it on paper, but the thing that I loved about that process was getting to kind of put in my sarcasm when I wanted it, yeah. being able to kind of build in those pauses to try to build some intrigue and being able to read it, not like a robot, but like you're sitting across from somebody, you know, drinking a cup of coffee. And so, yeah, it, that was its own gear that I had to find, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. It's interesting you say it like that, like you're talking to someone, not just reading it robotically, because for a while, when we're doing our intros for the cars, when I'm coaching, you say pretty much the same thing every time. And so it's just like, you don't even think about what you're saying, and it just comes out. Well, lately, I've been trying to actually talk to the person instead of just say the words, mm. you know, and it, it feels different, right? When you're like trying to connect with somebody instead of just say words. Yes. Yeah. Spot on. And, and, and telling the stories, man, everyone loves stories. You know, if you got really good at telling a 10 second story about how someone got it wrong, that's going to drive the point home that much more for that, for that, uh, that student of yours. And that's, what's cool, man. Our, our voices can be weapons and we can, if we can learn how to communicate, man, we can open people's hearts up to things and their minds up to new ideas. And I don't think there's a bigger superpower than that. Yeah. That's an important one. We've got to be able to connect with people. Otherwise you just, Two bodies floating around. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, what uh, what up, what upcoming events do you have planned uh, in your schedule this year? So, the only thing I've got left, I've got another speaking engagement in a couple of weeks. But the only thing I have left is um, uh, our Superstar Challenge is in Anaheim, California, at Angel Stadium, 
And it's kind of like our like World Finals is our big event. That's our Super Bowl, right? That's our our Indy 500, so to speak. And uh, this Superstar Challenge, I would say, is second to that. Like, it's a really great event. Um, I think it's 16 Monster Jam drivers heading out there to compete and special events all day on the 11th. But um, Anaheim is crazy. Uh, the, the the fans out there love Monster Jam. So that that event will definitely sell out. If anyone's within driving distance or wants to fly in for it, please do. Um, it'll be a lot of fun. And there's always just crazy stuff that happens in Anaheim. I don't know if all of us drivers just get all fired up because the fans, and they won't leave. Like the, the, the event will end. And we're, we always do a track walk and, you know, walk around and thank everybody and stuff like that. They won't leave. Like it's Saturday night. They're, they want to party. If there was an encore to be had, it would be in Anaheim. So I'm excited to go out there. And then um, I won't start our season until January. I think my first event's January 13th. And then I'll be pretty much every weekend until our world finals hits in May. So January to May is kind of our, our typical season. Okay. Um, and then the fall stuff that we've been doing here is kind of our off season stuff. I gotcha. Are you still involved with any of the drag racing at all? Uh, not officially. I still certainly have a lot of my relationships in, in drag racing. And I'd like to, to, to get back involved in drag racing eventually, but honestly, I'm in no rush either. I mean, if I, I, I feel like I can always go back to it. So if I went back at 45 or 55 years old, then I will, I'd still like to go as a team owner. I'd still like to go, you know, under my own power and just run it the way I want to run it. Um, I, I also think I, I'm building up really good partnerships right now so that whenever I, I did that, but I'm not looking to leverage all my Monster Jam stuff into a drag racing career either. Like I'm happy right where I'm at. I just think Monster Jam is going so young. Like they, they wouldn't rather me be 21 and probably, yeah, they would rather me, I was going to say a female, but, uh, they, you know, they're, they're, they're hungry for diversity as they should be. Uh, they're, yeah. they're hungry for, you know, um, having the ability to have, you know, a, a, a female driver competing as males, like, and, and, and as they should be, that's all great. I've got a daughter and I, I want her to believe that she can do whatever she sets her mind to as well. So all those things are really great, but I'm not 21. So I'm looking at that going, okay, how long do do I want to do this? And how long will Monster Jam want me to do this? And the good news is I don't see it ending anytime soon. But one day I'll be back in, in the drag racing world. And it's fun to keep up with what's going on there. I don't know how that sport is very sustainable given the cost right now. The cost is astronomically high. And you're going through parts even faster because they're running who did I just see went 336 miles an hour or someone, it was the first guy to go 300 miles an hour in the eighth mile. That's half track. They went and he hit the 300 first ever in history to go 300 miles an hour at the eighth. That's, that's, that's unbelievable. But you're talking about airplanes or cars, cars, dragsters. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Good point. Yeah. No. Yeah. The long skinny cars on, on that you see that go 300 miles an hour. Now you say in a quarter mile, now I got to say that go 300 miles an hour in the eighth mile. That's just I don't absurd. even know what that really means. That's wild. Yeah, <laughs> it is violent. It is so violent. If no one's got a chance to experience, you know, nitro methane powered vehicles, man, especially when they go out to Vegas, you need to go out there and see it. it. It sets off a two on the Richter scale, which measures earthquakes up to a mile away. That's how much, that's how violent these cars are. And when one of these cars go by you, it, it rattles you to your core. Um, so, and as a driver, it's, it's the most, it's the craziest feeling you've ever felt like it. You know, first time I ever hit the throttle, I wasn't pressing myself up against the seat. And I came out and I had a bruise on my back about the big rounds of a baseball. And so, I, you know, you quickly learn like, okay, you got to press yourself up against that seat as hard as you can because it just 
it hits so hard. But then what I, what I always told people was the launch. So it goes zero to 100 miles an hour in 0.8 seconds. <laughs> It'll beat a major league baseball to the home plate. If you set, if you started at 60 feet, if you started it at the major league pitching mound and you took off, you could beat the major league pitcher. So 100 mile uh, an hour to, to fastball plate. or something? What's that? 100 mile an hour fastball? Yeah, 100 mile an hour fastball. And Ooh. so if if you go out and set that up and you take off and that's the fun part of the run, when that clutch locks up, right? Because it's, it's a slip clutch. So you're, you can't apply 12,000 horsepower at the hit. And so they slip the clutch a little bit and it, it goes through. And it, as it's locking up though, when it locks up the first time I ever experienced that, the only thing I can describe it as is uh, in the Star Trek movies, when the stars all of a sudden go, whoosh, start rushing by, it's like yeah. they, the stars turn into lines. That's right. how it felt. It set you back. It set me back in the seat again when the clutch locked up and it like it, I went into hyperspeed where everything just started, you know, flying by me and my eyeballs. Your peripheral vision start to shut down because your brain cannot compute what's going on. That's why they call it tunnel vision. Um, and it's just the most unreal feeling. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. I'm honored that I got to drive and and make an attempt at making that my career. But uh, yeah, I'll do it again. But maybe I'll be 60. I don't know. Uh, but so whenever that time comes, I'll be ready. Um, question, is there a age limit on monster jam? Like in some series you age out at 55. Mm. No, there's not. Um, I know that most drivers that get asked to be done, they don't want to be done. Even Dennis Anderson, he got hurt in a truck and monster jam was kind of like, look, you're the biggest name in the history of the sport. Like if something happened to you seriously in this truck, like it'd be such a PR nightmare. And, uh, and so they they didn't want him to compete anymore. Uh, now it's Tom Mintz and Max D. I know he doesn't want to be done, uh, but I think it's the same thing. They've got some bigger projects for Tom. Tom, we call him the professor, and he's the one at Monster Jam University on a headset talking to people and training up the next generation of drivers. And right now that's more important to Monster Jam as a brand and a company than Tom actually being in the truck. So, uh, so this is his farewell tour, his farewell season. So anybody that knows Monster Jam knows Tom Mintz is one of the one of the uh, foundational guys. He'll absolutely be a hall of famer and uh, it's going to be an honor. I'm going to be on the same tour with him too. So it's going to be kind of, it's going to be cool to experience a farewell tour for Tom Mintz. It'll be a historical year. And then going back to the clutches, I wanted to ask about, do you actually release the clutch on the dragsters? Physically? Yes. So, yep. So you, you basically engage it in uh, on the steering, on the starting line though. So as soon as you do that, you, you kind of lock up that throw out bearing in a way or, or kind of prepare it. Um, and then once it it takes off, that throwout bearing is actually um, controlled by, uh, well, I was going to say actuators. Now I'm blanking on the right terminology for all this. And all this stuff has changed so much, but it's all timed to try to try to engage that clutch quicker. But that's why you see if, if anyone watches drag racing, you'll see some of the cars go up in smoke and blow the tires off. Nine times out of 10, it was because uh, they they were trying to apply the clutch too quickly. And it just blew the, you know, it blew through all the, the back tires with the horsepower. You put too much horsepower to the back tires um, at the wrong time or at the wrong part of the track. And that's part of the physics. The physics behind, I know, all of racing, right? Formula One, all the two-wheel stuff, Monster Jam, um, and drag racing, and and still in NASCAR as well. The physics behind this stuff's outrageous. That's why I think we all love it. Yeah, it's pretty wild. And uh, I've heard some figures, like, it's probably more than this. 
but for a single pass could cost six figures on a on a dragster man yeah. I, I wouldn't be so shocked if it was six i hope it's not six now you know when, when we were running it was you know which we were in a kind of a lesser league if you will it was about four grand for us and those big cars and NHRA are about 10 grand. I would say if it costs a hundred grand to pass, that includes all the sponsorship stuff. And they're, they're talking, you know, stuff at the shop. That's like dividing the cost to have a team okay. at the level of John force, the actual cost, meaning like, what did we just go through and burn like through rebuilding and parts? Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine that cannot be more than 20 grand, but Maybe it maybe it is a lot more. I'm I'm I'd be talking out of turn a little bit, but uh, it's it's high. Every single one of those passes, it's a lot of money <laughs> for sure. And uh, I I heard uh, sort of related um, the to get to space, uh, the amount of fuel that it requires per second is like fifteen thousand gallons of fuel. I'm like sure. how how many how many gallons do they have? How how big is the tank? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's incredible amount. You're talking at least sixty seconds to get out to the to the space right yeah yeah it's yeah, it's a lot of fuel <laughs> that's <laughs> a lot of heck. fuel so yeah. like, I, I know that it was like through? a uh everyone gave us the analogy for these top fuel cars on the fuel delivery is like a it's like a shower head per cylinder and like i saw one of those fuel pumps and how many gallons per minute it was 120 maybe it's more now it's a huge fuel pump but it is like a, an eight cylinder engine. And I want to say it was about a, it was like a shower head. Imagine a shower head, but pouring into a cylinder per cylinder. That, that's, that's how those fuel pumps look. Uh, but yeah, and it's all nitromethane. And what's cool about nitromethane is so incredibly explosive, but it's got to be ignited by electricity or, uh, or compression. It's not a flame. So you could have a cap of nitromethane. And from what I hear, you throw a, you could throw a, a match into it and nothing happens. You know, but if you took it on the on the tabletop there and took a hammer and hit where the nitromethane's sitting, then it would, you know, of course, blow your hand off probably. But that nitromethane is so incredibly explosive, and what it does to billet aluminum, it is very unforgiving. You talk about carnage; those those motors are unreal. Yeah, and maybe uh, it is a hundred grand per pass. <laughs> right, I love seeing those slow mo videos of the tires just crimping. Uh, in yeah. on themselves and uh they gotta be <laughs> such a low tire pressure to do that yeah yeah what is everybody i can't even remember what everyone's running at now so i don't want to say it and be wrong but yeah it is and that's part of it you know if you get it wrong that tire shake is so violent because the tires you know it's almost like if you've ever stepped on on your the your toe on your other foot you know in your shoe and you kind of like stumble that's how that's what the tires act like it's it's kind of uh 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 wrinkling on top of itself in a bad way and that that tire shake is so incredibly violent so that's the worst situation not worse i get a driver being upside down flying through the air is the worst but uh a good healthy run i guess of any tire shake man that's a bad day for the driver so um for people who don't know why would a car if it's going completely straight sometimes veer to one side and like and like not have a good pass yeah a lot of times, so if, if a cylinder goes out, they talk about like dropping a hole, you know, if people don't actually realize, especially on those dragsters, you know, they have the big giant wings on the back. And that's essentially like ha sitting a minivan on the back of that dragster when it's going out of the track. That's how much downforce it produces, um, like up to 4,000 pounds-ish, I think. But the headers themselves 
provide, I want to say it was about 800 pounds of downforce each. Okay. So when you drop a hole and that hole, that, that cylinder is no longer firing and that can happen for a couple of different reasons, but you're actually losing that downforce on this, that side of the dragster. Hmm. So uh, it is those dragsters. It's like an arrow and you have to re-aim them as it's going down the track. You're not driving the dragsters. The funny cars you are, you're like wrestling a bull. <laughs> the dragsters, you're almost re-aiming when it makes a, makes a move. And the thing you got to get used to as a driver is looking further down the track because your eyes aren't used to it. If you just looked at the end of the dragster, you're, you, you know, kill yourself because you're, you're the, the car's moving so quickly. You're already past by the time you react to something, you're, you know, you're a hundred foot past it. Um, but, um, that, that header though, when, when you drop a hole like that and it loses that downforce, 800 pounds of downforce is big. So all of a sudden that's what makes it want to, the, the, the left side, if the hole came out on the right side, that left side is out driving the right, you know, and there's more pressure on that left tire and it'll actually push that car in that, the direction where you drop the hole on. So yeah, those cars, man, they, sometimes they've got minds of their own. They're barely touching the asphalt and the concrete. And if you put wings on them, they would fly. You know, you put little airplane wings on the sides. They, they, that's exactly what it's trying to do is lift off. Um, and you're doing everything you can just to pinch the front and the back uh, down to keep it on, on the earth. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing how quickly they move. You just got to be ready for it as a driver. I've heard that some airplanes take off at 120 miles an hour. So talking yeah. 300 plus you're that's flight right there yeah it's flight baby <laughs> and here my job today as a monster jam driver is exact opposite like you know <laughs> 45 feet in the air that's just another day at the office for me <laughs> so how do you go from like some of the fastest vehicles on earth to like the biggest fifteen thousand power uh, fifteen thousand horsepower uh cars doing 45 feet in the air that's yeah a big man it's funny because everyone's like, oh, did it did it prepare you in your career with Monster Jam coming out of drag racing? And I'm like, no, it did not. Because, you know, coming out of drag racing, it's all about horsepower. And, you know, Monster Jam, any motorsport is just that. Like, it's the application of horsepower. Uh, but to your point, it's like, you know, in drag racing, flying through the air would have been a really bad day. You know, <laughs> Monster Jam, though, that's just part of it. But I, I'm really good at the the engines. Like, I can hear them. I can feel them. You know, that's my whole world was the powertrain. And so I can pinpoint a lot and I can send the crew guy back to it because they, they don't really do a ton with the motors. It's all about the drivetrain to them, right? It's all about the planetaries and the kingpin and, and all of the corners and stuff like that. And so for a couple of years, man, about as much information as I could give a crew guy was like, man, I don't know, but that, that, that front left, you know, corner feels a little, little bit crunchy. You know, <laughs> that was about as good of information I could provide them. And now I'm a lot better, but I'm still not as good as some of these drivers that came up through this world. And, you know, here they've been driving for 30 years. They can they can pinpoint a bolt that's loose on a four link bar just from driving it. And I'm like, I don't I'm never going to be that guy, unfortunately, uh, but I'm, I'm better at the motors and stuff like that. But I think that's what it is. I mean, as long as you're coming into the sport wanting to understand, you can learn it. And you can feel it as a driver, just like you do with these road cars now and the different makes and models. And uh, even though the, they want all the Monster Jam trucks to be the same, they all feel a little different. And so knowing your machine and being able to to communicate and and effectively make changes at the right time, it's big. Yeah. yeah every car is going to feel different, right? No car feels yeah. the same, even if they're supposed to be the same chassis, same tire, same engine. There's still different yeah. settings. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So uh, are you ever interested in transferring to another series like uh, 
maybe another discipline like sports cars or bikes or anything like that? Man, I, I, I don't know that I'm, it's not that I'm not interested. I think it's, I've gone so deep in what I'm in that again, you think about like being qualified for something else. And and I think every motorsport seems like they're trying to favor the 23 year old over the, you know, 40 year old. So if I think about the next five years of my life, where, where it would, what it would qualify me for may not align with what that business is trying to do. You think about Lewis Hamilton, is he too old to drive? Like, no. But is he getting pushed out of the sport? Yes. It's obvious that they're pushing him out. So I think it, uh, I think, I think all of our dreams are to run as hard as we can, as long as we can, and as long as it fits. And, and I think that, that my next step is really going to be more around doing stuff like my book and doing more speaking engagements, talking at conferences, talking to brands, going in there and, because first of all, it's lucrative. Like, you know, you can go and, and do a speaking gig and get paid really well. If you do 20, 25 engagements a year, you can make a really good living doing that. Um, the book is just a tool. And like I've described in, in before, um, that'll be used with those speaking engagements and such and, uh, and, and truly helping people. So I think that's more of what I'm excited about doing is kind of taking this platform and saying, it's good. Driving is fun. Uh, but that's icing on the cake. Like th th this is going to qualify me for something beyond just uh, Monster Jam. And if there's a way to do that in motorsports past Monster Jam, I'll do it. If there's a way to do it for the next 15 years inside of Monster Jam, I I'm perfectly happy where I'm at. But it's not about like becoming a Monster Jam announcer or something like that. I'm not interested in doing that. Um, uh, but it'll be something around motorsports, leveraging, leveraging the platform and then leveraging the areas in which I feel like I'm best at, right? And to try to be so good, they can't ignore me, whatever is next. <laughs> Very good. I like it. Well, that's uh, just about two hours. So I think we could probably wrap it up here. Unless you got something else to say? No, man, we've, we've covered it all, man. I appreciate you having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'll get this edited and posted. It'll be published probably in a couple of weeks. I still have uh, several ep episodes to edit and publish before I get to yours, but they'll definitely get to it. I'll make sure I post it and share it and when it comes out. That sounds great, buddy. I appreciate it, Eric, and, and keep me posted, and I'll I'll push it out as well and uh, use any sound bites I can, anything you pull out, and uh, I'll, I'll push those out to, to our followers and, and get them over to the podcast. They can get introduced to you as well. They'll love Very it. Good. I can't wait to read the book myself. Everybody else, go ahead and buy the book. All right. Thanks, All Eric. Right. Take care, man. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye-bye.